You are about to step into a brave new world of power, performance, and productivity made possible by the new Commodore Amiga 500 home computer. Sit back and get set for the ride of your life. I am the Commodore Amiga 500. I am the ultimate home computer. So easy to use, with powers and abilities far beyond anything you may have ever experienced before. I am dazzling graphics and animation. A home office productivity wonder. I am extraordinary home video production and special effects. A versatile composer of thought as well as music. I am arcade quality games in stereo. A teacher of fact and a teller of tales. I am 512,000 bytes of pure power. Expandable to one full megabyte of internal memory. I am the mighty Motorola 68000 microprocessor. A built-in 3.5 inch disk drive and a floating keyboard with 10 function keys and a numeric keypad. Versatile, easy-to-use menus and pull-down windows make me adaptable to virtually every goal and aspect of your life. At the touch of a button, at the click of a mouse, I am yours to command and control at a price you can afford. I am everything you ever thought possible and impossible in a home computer. And now, you can be everything that I am. Hello, everybody. It's time for another Cana Rinse podcast. It's one of our quarterly format specials. And this time, it's going to be all about, if you haven't been following, it could be a surprise. It's the Amiga, the Commodore Amiga. It's a computer. First time we've covered a micro. Uh, probably won't be the last, but there you go. If you're listening as a non-Patreon, you could head over to patreon.com slash and for a dollar a month, currently around 79p or 0.88 of a euro, who knows what it'll be by the time you hear this, you can sign up and there will imminently already be the next format special waiting for you. If you're a Patreon and listening to this in, say, early July 2019, thank you. Thank you very much. Now joining me, Leon Cox, in this Amiga show are Chris O'Regan, as I said. Hello. Jesse Fuchs, as I said. Hello. And Ben Cartledge. Good evening. From One Credit Classics. I'm sure you know him by now. So Chris is uh, a collector and a sort of gaming historian, uh, has an Amiga to this day. He'll be talking about his... Uh, his current setup, as it were. Uh, Jesse teaches about computers at the NYU Game Center. He's an American, you'll notice, uh, and the Amiga was less popular in America, despite originating from there, but uh, it will give us an interesting perspective. And Ben, like me, I think, was basically a kid of the right sort of age to desperately want and have and love a Commodore Amiga in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, that kind of era. We'll get into it. There's a lot to talk about. But the first thing I want to do is share this nice little post from Warfendorf on the forum who says, Hello, Kana Rince team and Kana Rince fans. I'm excited for this Amiga special. Usually I'll have played the game or console up for discussion or at the very least I'll have read about it or watched someone else play it. But since my gaming started in the early 90s with a second hand NES and because I didn't know anyone at the time who owned a computer, the Amiga is a blinding blind spot in my video game knowledge. Just to say, I've listened to every Kane and Rinse a few multiple times, and this will be one of the rare times that I get to learn about something completely foreign. So thanks for all you do. Well, thank you, Wolfendorf. 
And uh, it's a good job that you're there to give us that perspective because, you know, we might jump straight into the realms of the the what's known to us that may be obscure to some of you listening. So uh, we want to try and strike that balance between being informative without being patronising. Uh, but let's start by being patronising. The Amiga was a 16-bit personal microcomputer <laughs> or a PC, if you will, uh, not a PC as we know it. In, in modern things because it, it is a Windows or Linux, basically, and it wasn't MS-DOS, it was Amiga-DOS, but it was a PC. We can call it the PC, can't we? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mac is a PC, although you, it'd be computer, confusing to say that. Yeah. 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 Semantics. But it was a personal computer. It was, yeah. Yes. It is. Yeah. But for many, many of us, and is, yes, all right. <laughs> it's dead, Chris. Sorry. Leave it. Um <laughs> But yeah, for many of us, it was uh, a games machine with keys. Uh, <laughs> uh, and obviously, Kane and Rinse is mainly a video game show, so that's our main focus. However, uh, we will talk a little bit about some of the other things that uh, the Amiga was capable of and utilised for. Jesse was getting very excited today, looking <laughs> up uh, the archives of things that the Amiga did. We'll if, come to that. if you want the 90th, the 90th <laughs> thing ever. Yes, Tony Hawk, Video Toaster, Star Wipes. That's, that's, it's beautiful. Will Wheaton, Pendulum. Oh, God, yes. Were we blind yes. back then? I, I don't know. I... Well, <laughs> we'll look back on today and hopefully be we just were excited. We were excited by the, the new time. It was a different time in so many ways. Technology. Uh, Spanish for girlfriend, Amiga. <laughs> yes. The irony. Indeed. Uh, yeah, I remember once, and this is not very PC, but I said it in 1990, and I meant it in a very self-deprecating way. Uh, some people at work where I was said, uh, you know, something like, oh, you've got an Amiga. Uh, what, it is you like, what is it you like so much about it? And I said, well, it's a real fanny magnet, um, <laughs> which, which it most definitely wasn't. Uh, I was a spotty virgin when I got my Amiga. Uh, Alex seventy nine UK from the forum gives us a nice uh, kickoff to sum up what uh, what it was like for a lot of us back at this period. Alex says, "When I was a kid, as far as I was concerned, the Amiga was the holy grail of video gaming. Something I desperately wanted, but was just a bit beyond the means of my family. I remember poring over adverts in games magazines, screenshots and reviews, and just thinking, man, I really want one of those.'" At middle school, aged around 11, a friend of mine owned one, and in an act that was cut short by an observant teacher, we used to sneak out of the school gates at lunchtime and go to his house to play on it. He only lived two minutes away, and playing stuff like Golden Axe, Shadow of the Beast and Manchester United Europe was so worth the enormous telling off I got from my parents for those lunchtime excursions. About a year or two later, a very generous friend lent me his Amiga, and I had one glorious half-term holiday just going through his impressive collection of hooky games. God, it was so good. Monkey Island 2, Cannon Fodder, Sensible Soccer, Speedball 2, all the greats. Still, owning an Amiga always remained out of my reach until, aged around 23-24, I discovered online shopping and eBay, and so eventually I owned my own Amiga A500. I was so excited when it arrived, I bought a shed load of games with it, along with a competition pro, the king of joysticks, get out of here with your power play cruisers, I spent one incredible weekend locked in a room with nothing but memories. Memories of things I'd played and memories of games I'd always imagined playing. It was glorious. Of course, as with most things you buy as an adult that you were desperate for as a kid, the novelty soon wore off and spoiled by years of consoles and already owning a decent gaming PC for its time, 
I soon packed the Amiga back up, and there it remains. Still, I'll always look at the Amiga as this legendary games machine, and I've not even mentioned all the amazing music produced on it and the demo scene that grew from it. What a computer. Perfectly summed up there, Alex. But we must uh, sort of hear from the panel and find out when and where our Amiga journey started. Let's start with our guest, Ben. Uh, so I had a uh, I had a master system. I seem to remember telling you good people. Um, I had it when I was about tenish. So I was born in yep. 1980. So I was like 1990. I had that uh, with some like accumulated money for various things and birthdays and the rest of it. So I got to like 11. Went to high school, and uh, it's a massive big time of kind of change in your life. Meet a load of new people, do a load of new things, and uh, I had I made a few friends quite quickly. And one of them, um, who I'm still mates with today, actually, um, we. Uh, I made plans. We made plans to go in his house because he had this had this thing. And I didn't even know what it was. And uh, I went around his house, and lo and behold, he had this Amiga set up. And we both had Master Systems at the time. Um, and I, I can't, I don't know where he'd had it from. I don't know what the occasion was because it was like the middle of the year. It was, it was kind of, uh, or maybe no, it would have been a bit late. That October time, anyhow. Um, and yeah, he had this Amiga six hundred set up, and hmm. it, he had at the time he had a lot of games that. Were, were graphically uh, quite spectacular. I remember him having kind of, uh, I want to say he had, he had Turrican and uh, and Myth and a, th- a load of things that kind of showed off uh, elements of, the, of that system that I didn't think, uh, that I, I, obviously I couldn't couldn't do with it with, with the Master System really. Mm-hmm. The thing that got me about it the most was the fact that, uh, and I'm as well my hands up to, like kind of now, like piracy played a massive part in my uh, journey on the oh, Amiga. Absolutely. As with, as with yes. most people realistically. Do you know the what I mean? cops aren't coming. No, that's me. good. To be honest, well, that's my that's the <laughs> I don't know. That's the least of my worries if they are. But um, <laughs> but but yeah, um, and it was just the fact that he had this he had this kind of system, and he must have had about a hundred games. He just had a disc box with all these pirated kind of games. And I remember at the time thinking this is far and away the best thing uh, the best thing I've seen at the time. So then began the long and laborious grind of convincing my parents to kind of get me one for Christmas, even though at that point, like I say, Christmas nineteen ninety one. They were still quite quite expensive at that time. Quite yeah. expensive, like we didn't have yeah. a, a boatload of money. And they agreed that if I could find somebody to buy my master system and I could sell that and I chipped them the money for that, then they'd get me an Amiga. So I ended right. up doing that, yeah. and I had an Amiga in um, Christmas nineteen ninety one. And uh, my brother then sought out because one of his mates had one, replicating that and getting me a disc box with about I, don't, I had a lot of games. I want to say I had, I had between sixty and hundred. Which is crazy now, like to, at that time, having having a, a Christmas day like that, a brand new, like Amiga, I had a joystick and everything. I had a uh, what I have, I had a quick shot Apache, I want to say, cool. um, and I had, uh, and it just that whole time over that Christmas, it just, I just really, I don't know, it's one of those kind of time, one of those memories really of just not really doing anything else, and for me, kind of that initial, kind of. Um, I don't know, that initial kind of attraction I had with the system when I first had my own one, it was just kind of magnified like massively really. And and yeah. from from then on, like there was about four or five of us of those those friends that I made at, at high school kind of all had one. And this the the scene that I became a part of then grew as a result of the fact that we all knew different people and then like I say, through the year through, <laughs> through the wonders of piracy, the second oh, yeah. that one person had a game, everybody did. And it all kind of uh, and it all kind of moved forward from there, really. And I still, I still look at the Amiga. I credit the Amiga for opening my eyes to kind of certain genres of games I hadn't really played before. And we'll get onto a lot with the games in, in in kind of the other sections. But I mean, like I say, more kind of 
stuff that you couldn't really do on a on a a, a console really kind of more ma- mouse based stuff like like June 2 and Civilization and things like that kind of thinking kind of games it kind of developed my uh, developed my kind of uh, I don't know my kind of gaming kind of character persona the kind of thing I enjoyed really and it's one of those things that I look back at now and think to myself it was it was it had a massive influence in the kind of games that I went on to really enjoy and the kind of that kind of some of the best multiplayer that I can remember, especially the really, really up until now is those are original. Do you know what I mean? Two, three years I had before I ended up getting a SNES and just, uh, and, and that kind of a, a, a mega scene, really. Like I say, it was 91 to 93 ish were kind of the, the years yeah. when we were all kind of full speed. I was like 11, between the ages of 11 and 13. It was perfect. Yeah, it was a great time. Just don't go back and ever play that US gold conversion of Ghouls and Ghosts. I ain't about to. Don't worry about it. You'll you'll want to cry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it wasn't even the worst, but uh, we'll come on to that. So, Chris, uh, just take us through the the last 31 years of your life, (laughs) please. I'm not doing that. uh, The Amiga parts. The Amiga parts only. So, (laughs) slightly uh, older than than Ben, uh, 1970. And so... for me, I was a teenager when the Amiga was first rumoured. That's right, rumoured. I remember standing in a, in a, in a playground in the mid, mid-80s with a friend who I was still in contact with, I'm happy to say. And uh, he was uh, espousing this Amiga thing. Now, at the time, uh, I was uh, an Amstrad owner and, you know, we were, that was fine. You know, everyone had their 8 bits and I was waving the Amstrad flag where everyone else was. Spectrum and 364, but that's another issue for another time. And but that's what's happening in British schoolyards across across the nation. And but then they started babbling, babbling about this Amiga thing. And it's a very strange word. So I'd be like, what is this? Is even a word? Is it? And like I've been saying, well, what about the ST? Because I'd heard about the Atari mm. ST. And he goes, well, yeah. Yeah, that's a thing as well. But what's the difference? And we're struggling because at the time there was very fleeting pieces of information, and eventually. I managed to find out more about the Amiga and how expensive it was. And uh, a few years later, I left school and uh, started work. And uh, I got an ST, which is not, this show's not about an ST, so I get that. Let's move on. Uh, And uh, it wasn't until 89, 88, 89. Memory's a bit fuzzy on this, but I definitely remember buying a second hand. Amiga, because I always had an ST, and the bonus was that I bought this thing uh, on the premise that I could actually, well, how can I put it, um, exploit the fact that the modulator, the TV modulator that came with this Amiga, was balked, mm. it was broken. I didn't oh, no. need it, because I had a monitor, like a regular Ooh, monitor. fancy. Uh, Expensive. Yeah, well, it didn't matter, because I was working, yeah? You know what it's like. Yeah. So, I, I you know, the hell with the expense and all of that. Mm. Um, so I had a, a Philips C eight eight seven nine nine. I think what they were called. Anyway, <laughs> got to get the code yeah, number. Code right. number. And then the people, are like, I think you'll find. Anyway, so it was that, <laughs> that, and it's an amazing, amazing monitor, and it could take. It had a SCART plug and everything. It was beautiful, and I used it for my ST, and then I eventually got an Amiga as well. Mm. And uh, I remember first game, um, I, and uh, it came with um, some games, all of which weren't in a single box. They were individually wrapped in sort of, in fact, they were just regular games that I didn't have, uh, unlike uh, Ben, and I've heard this, uh, I didn't have any actually pirated games at all on my Amiga mm. um, 
I think it might be an age thing, or yes, I think it's yeah. probably that. So I, just, I only ever had one pirate as well. Yeah, so I had yeah. great delight in having these ridiculously large box games. Um, yes. Not as large as the Americans had, but neither that. No, <laughs> and although and they also came in all different size boxes. So there were some that were sort of the A4 size, yeah. some that were little slim boxes, some little plastic ones. It, like there was no consistent format. They all came in all different sort of sizes. Yeah. And, I took, and it came with one megabyte expansion. So one five nice. twelve megabytes, so one megabyte RAM, yes. and it was, it was it was great. And I remember playing a demo, an amazing, which I've still got somewhere actually, um, amazing demo tune that was just uh, just blew my mind because I was up until then I was using the ST, which was all right, but the uh, the sound chip in it wasn't great. In fact, it was yeah, it was much more like sounded more like an Amstrad. It or did something, because I think it the used ST, the same yeah. chip, quite same sound chip. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, there it is, and then I eventually upgraded that machine to an A1200 and so on and so forth, which we can talk about later. Yep. But, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, for me, um, it was uh, quite an eye-opener. There's some, some of the games there, I just marveled at the increased speed in some of them compared to what I experienced with, with yeah. ST, although sometimes it's the other way around, rarely. Uh, but generally speaking, um, there, was this, there was definitely... It was an upgrade. I, I, I begrudgingly admitted it. Up until then, I was quite the ardent ST fan, and I still have one. Um, and they have both have their strengths and weaknesses, but I still think the Amiga has, is is up on uh, as regards to the sixteen uh, stroke thirty two bit computers of the time. That's true. Yes, of course. It although I said earlier it was a sixteen bit micro, it does actually uh, it, it goes across. It does eventually into arrives the, into thirty two bit land. Yes. Yeah, it's very true. So, Jesse, uh, you, uh, as we said, you're from America, where it was uh, the landscape in terms of video games was very much dominated by the NES. And I assume computer in computer world, was it dominated by MS-DOS PCs? I, um, really... Yeah, but not game-wise. I mean, no, right. people did. Uh, I Apple definitely twos. had friends. Yes, I had friends who had Apple IIs. Commodore 64s were big. Commodore mm-hmm, 64 mm-hmm. did... Uh, come back like 86 and 87 are pretty strong years in the u.s for the commodore 64 and then it just goes over a cliff because then the nintendo really just eats all of its share up um it's worth saying though actually sorry to butt in the commodore commodore kept going with the c64 right into the 90s alongside the amiga like they kept remarketing it and repackaging it it's it wasn't like the xbox to the xbox 360 where microsoft just killed the xbox Commodore kept both machines going for a long, long time. Yeah, and I think the 64 made, I mean, they were just able to reduce the cost over and over. It was sort of like Apple hated, well, Steve Jobs hated the Apple II. Apple II was their best-selling machine until basically the 90s. Like, it was still kind of the standard in schools and stuff like that. Macintosh until, like, 88 wasn't taken, like, it was a neat thing, but it was kind of a novelty item. Um... And yeah, the uh, I had an Atari 800 uh, and I had an Atari 2600, you know, before that. And mm. basically, I mean, uh, I, I would say I was uh, whatever demographic would be sort of middle class scavenger, as in <laughs> like had yeah. some money, like my birthday's in November and then there's Christmas. And between the two, I could usually, you know, pull together grandma money, et cetera, and like do something, get something I liked. Um but I did have to like wait and swoop in 
uh, like the video game crash in 1983 was like the happiest year of my life. Um, I did not realize it was a bad thing. Like I, I got a Vectrex for $50. Um, my first computer was a TI-99 4A again Mm. for $50 that my dad heard about and just went and bought at Toys R Us or whatever. And that was, you know, Jack uh, Trammell at Commodore had just crushed Texas Instruments out of the U.S. market uh, and basically killed their computer. And then there was just a fire sale on them. And that was um, that was the computer I grew up with, basically, until I got my Atari 800, which, again, was sort of on sale, not that deep a discount, but because Trammell had basically beaten Atari. uh, And that was like 84, 85. and uh yeah my dad had uh my dad had the um the Sanyo I forget the model number but it is known as the only IBM clone actually slower than an IBM. <laughs> um and it only ran Infocom games. So I played a lot of text adventures well, on that. Um yeah, they'll keep you busy. Yeah, no, they were great. Me I had uh, great memories of of solving Planetfall with him. Um but uh yeah, I mean, and my, yeah, my mom eventually got a compact, but that was the thing, was like, PCs were around, and they're clearly powerful, but they're not great game machines, of course, yet at all. Um, and there's a few, like, you know, I was happy when my mom got that, because then I could play Wizardry. There were, you know, a few games like that. Um, but, um, you know, VGA and all of that sort of stuff doesn't mm. really hit until 89, 90. Um, yeah. And uh, most of my friends, yeah, they get a Nintendo um and that really becomes the dominant thing from 87 until i graduate high school in 1990 and go off to college um and so my amiga experience that comes in in sort of two parts uh the first part is that so i went to i got a scholarship to go to this private quaker school i'm from new jersey um Mm. and it's this nice little school uh, I've been back there for a reunion and now it is just terrifyingly wealthy. But like when I went there, it was like pleasant, but pokey, you know, you know, rich kid way. Um, but because it was a Quaker school, like you didn't really get a sense of class dissension, right? Like you didn't necessarily know who were the scholarship kids versus the rich kids necessarily until, uh, the last six weeks of the year were something called unit. There were three trimesters of like normal school and then you would do unit. And if you were one of the kids paying full price, your unit would be learn about Greece for four weeks and then go to Greece for two weeks or whatever, right? There cool. there are a lot of these things of like learn about a country and then go to the country. If you were one of the, you know, kids who was there on scholarship, whatever, you're, you know, I did uh, fencing in my ninth grade. I did six weeks of saber fencing uh, and that was awesome. And, you know, that cost like cool. 200 bucks for the equipment, but was like reasonable. Uh, medieval history and literature, which cost nothing, but that was like, you know, I was a big D&D nerd, uh, and most, you know, I want to get some uh, backing for that. And then junior year was audiovisual something, right? Basically making movies. Um, and it was then that I found out that my school had a, basically two VCRs hooked to, I think, an Amiga 1000, right? And so this would be 1988, uh, early 88. Um, and um, for the next six weeks, me and my friends who are in this with me, um, basically made terror, like literally sophomoric, you know, Monty Python style skits or whatever, whatever we thought as, you know, 15 year olds was funny. Yeah. Um, but spend an enormous amount of time learning about editing and like Genlock and like, you know, and doing bad teenage sketch comedy is actually like, you're going to do a lot of, uh, little effects 
you know, you're going to have text appear on the screen. You're going to, you're definitely a, uh, a, a stage for trying every gimmick uh, in the Amiga book. And of course, this is well before the video toaster. So there weren't those sorts of special effects. Um, but I got pretty familiar with it without, with, and I knew in the abstract it was a video game machine. But we weren't going to, like, you know, it just wasn't in the cards. Um, it was in this particular room for this particular purpose, hooked to two VCRs. Um, mm. And then, so that was the uh, spring. And then in the fall, my mom got remarried. Or she met someone that year, remarried him in the fall, and we moved in with him, uh, who's still my stepfather, uh, Dick. And uh, he had an Amiga. Um, uh -huh. And that was definitely... <laughs> one of those, you know, Formative. I was neutral on the relationship, whatever, you know, my mom, make, <laughs> make my mom happy. That's good. But like, you seem fine. But right, you know, oh, you own an Amiga. Uh, I'm in. So, so we move in. And, uh, and so my senior year, and then when I would go back and visit over break in college are pretty much my like, prime Amiga time. Um, and I played a lot of different stuff because a he had some source. I never really saw him playing that many games or whatever. I think he was a guy who just likes collecting tech stuff and basically liked playing games for five minutes to see sort of the technical capabilities. He's an engineer um, and then put it aside. Right. But he would he had a bunch of pirated discs, uh, which is not something I'd actually really encountered before. Like I had a decent number of games because I was like a bargain hunter buying, you know, five dollar Atari games in 1985 or whatever. Um, but it was still like I had to decide to buy something. And so it was my first sort of exposure to kind of that kind of dabbling, right? Where you're just like, well, and, and of course, you don't have the instruction manuals. So if you get stuck, you're like, well, I must not be able to figure this out, move on to the next thing. Um, so I played a bunch of stuff there, but also then I had turned uh, 15 and uh, I was old enough to work at my favorite place in the world, Software Station, the uh, computer game and productivity software store in the Rockaway, New Jersey mall. Awesome. Um, and you know, working there, uh, they sold, I, my, the biggest commission I ever, I got a uh, three an hour plus 2% commission. And I did one sell an Amiga for a thousand bucks and that was 20 bucks in my pocket. And, uh, I was very happy that day. And there was a policy where you could, you know, borrow a game and as long as you kept it in good shape, shrink wrapped it again, et cetera. Um, so I got to play a lot of different stuff there. And, and interestingly, they carried Nintendo games, but you could not. There was some seal on them. So you could not borrow those. You could yeah, borrow the computer right. games. So that definitely pushed me towards just playing everything. You know, sometimes I'd borrow things just for the instruction manual. Like I already had the disc at home um, and I got an employee discount. So I got the game I'd been lusting after ever since I had seen it on some kids Atari ST a few years before uh, was Dungeon Master. Um, mm -hmm. And that was like the first thing I bought when we moved into that house. Um, and yeah, I. It continued in that uh, I definitely played a bunch of it at least as late as 91 or 92 because I played a bunch of Lemmings. Uh, my stepfather must have gotten that disc at some point. So that must have been when I was in college back visiting. Um, but I also then for graduating high school, I got a used Mac Plus. And interestingly, I kind of felt like I ended up playing with that. more. I guess partially it was my machine, but um, and then when I went to college, there were no Amigas. It was all. You know, you either had a Mac or a PC. Um, yeah. And that was really the last Amiga I saw until uh, I encountered the one at the NYU Game Center that we right. use now. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, for me, the first 
thing I remember seeing about an Amiga was an article semi-review in I think it was it was either CMVG or Commodore user in 19 it would it must have been early 1986 I suppose the Amiga had been around for a few months and it was uh, a piece about it was the screenshot that caught my eye it was Marble Madness so it was electronic arts home conversion of the Atari coin-op by Mark Cerny with its amazing high-res MC Escher-esque graphics and it looked in the screenshot the same to me and i read the words and it said nearly arcade perfect i was like what how is this possible um so i realized that this was a, a desirable item and then i read the rest of the article and it said a thousand dollars or pounds or whatever and i was like okay uh, that I, that ain't happening i was uh, happy enough with my atari 8-bit computer and i you know i loved that thing for many more years but I was also buying multi-format magazines and Zap64, which started to incorporate Amiga coverage. And as the decade wore on, the the games started to come thicker and faster and the screenshots became more and more tantalizing. And it was 1989 when the Batman pack came out that uh, it really started to overtake the 8-bit micros in people's hearts and minds and conversations. I turned 18 in June 1990 and... Uh, I persuaded my mum that the Amiga was what I needed for my my main present for turning 18. I have a feeling like Jesse, I think I came to some arrangement or sorry, like uh, like Ben, I came to some arrangement about chipping in towards it as well. This again, you know, this was not an insignificant amount of money at all. And I think I agreed to pay, you know, like a portion of it. And funnily enough, I did the same a few years later when we upgraded uh, my A500. I was no longer a spotty virgin and I had a girlfriend and uh, she was into gaming too. And we wanted to get an A1200 with a hard drive and uh, she paid for it up front. But uh, on the proviso that I had to pay her back <laughs> 150 quid and my mate bought my Amiga 500 off us and he paid us back 150 quid. And that was how you did things back then. <laughs> um, and yeah, basically I was Amiga obsessed for from the summer of 1990 until... I guess it really went out of regular service in about 95 when the PlayStation came along. and uh, But I still have it. I still have my A1200 with a hard drive. I think it still works, uh, but I, it's not hooked up currently. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest about that. The first memory, though, what you've got to remember is I had an Atari 8-bit, which I adored. But apart from a few cartridge games rom cartridges which loaded instantly as you'd hope i had mainly cassette games i had no disk drive for my atari and the average loading time of an atari cassette was 12 to 18 minutes so while i can't quite remember the exact first moment that i sort of pulled the amiga out of its packaging and out of its box and set it up the thing i remember the game i was lusting after the most was this arcade conversion of Rainbow Islands. It had been reviewed, it was completed and reviewed months and months before because Firebird had the license, but then Firebird Telecom Soft went out of business and they sold off the games they had to various other people. So Ocean picked up Rainbow Islands. It was included in this pack. And I played Rainbow Islands once in a local arcade, but it was outside Brighton, so I didn't get there very often. And it was in a machine, you know, You'll know this, the, those arcade cabinets that had the really weird, big rectangular buttons like off a fruit machine. Anyone remember those? No, I don't. Uh, oh, there I come. No. 
Okay, so <laughs> basically, not good, not good buttons for for proper right. uh, video game play, and uh, so that was the only way I'd played it. But I knew I I already loved Bubble Bobble to death, and Rainbow Islands I knew was the next one of it, and so I was just insanely looking forward to play. I, you know, I was keen on playing F twenty nine Retaliator and Escape from the Planet of the Robot Monsters as well, but Rainbow Islands was the one, and I just remember the first time I put the floppy disk in and it went in with that satisfying click and ping, and the drive starts whirring, and then within about four seconds, it seemed like this amazingly detailed, colourful loading screen came up. On the Atari, you didn't even get loading screens most of the time because it took the. It would have taken like fifteen minutes to put the loading graphic on, and then another fifteen minutes to load the game. So most developers didn't do like like they did on the Spectrum and the and the Commodore sixty four. So this was just to see this loading screen come up in thirty two colors in seconds was magic, and I was smitten from from there on basically. Obviously, there is a, a huge story about Commodore, the creation of the machine. We're not going to tell all that here today. Uh, it's all out there. There's a, a lengthy multi-part piece on Ars Technica, History of the Amiga. There's also a very nice video from Kim Justice, The Rise and Fall of the Amiga. Uh, it was born from the fiery heart of Jack, Jack Trammell, um, who also uh, was a, a former Atari guy, I think. No, he ended up at Atari after ended up he at Atari. founded right. Commodore back That's in like right. the 50s, um, yes. but right. then lost control of it to like the finance guy, fought with him for 20 years. I love this yeah. man. He is clearly insane. <laughs> um, Old school, uh, kind of big, yeah. bald, scary businessman. He took great delight in firing middle managers. He would just yeah. walk into an office and it was called the Jack Attack. And he would proceed right. to just fire people randomly that he thought weren't performing. Uh, it was just, just you can say insane. I, I, there's <laughs> other words I could use to describe him. Um, yeah, probably I, wouldn't uh, wouldn't get past the HR department these days. No, he handed over handed over to his uh, son Sam, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, he had a trio of sons, of course. Um, but yes, there was uh, there was a lawsuit, complicated wranglings. The ST was developed in a hurry to get to market at the same time, I believe. Earlier, mm -hmm. I think. Or, near, or, or yeah, ahead. Slightly yeah. ahead, I think it got. I can't yeah. remember. And really, it went, the whole Commodore story went up and down and all over the place over the next, uh, yeah, from 1985 to the eventual kind of finish in 94. Um, a guy called Medi Ali took over as CEO and kind of ran it into the ground. In that's the short version. The machine was uh, actually designed by a Silicon Valley startup, which comprised. I never knew this when I was as much as I loved my Atari Eight Bit. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that I was getting the basically the spiritual successor. I assumed that the Atari ST was the spiritual successor to my machine, um, but the Amiga it became apparent from all the games reviews that the Amiga was the slightly more desirable machine based on its scrolling capabilities and its stereo sound and improved sound trip chip and all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it turns out, you know, it's designed by Jay Minor, the, uh, the same guy really who came up with a lot of the stuff, the, the eight bit Atari architecture. And, and the lead chip designer on the Atari 2600. So right, going back even further. Yeah, no, he go. he was the first person to really separate out the like I, I'm not a technical person, but you know, to the graphics bit so the CPU doesn't have to do everything. Right. Yeah. And that is that's the interesting thing about 80s stuff is the, like the incommensurateness of like 
DOS is more powerful. Apple II is in some way more powerful, but neither of them have any dedicated ability to do anything yeah. cool. <laughs> mm, right. Yeah, so that Silicon Valley startup also uh, included early on Larry Kaplan, co-founder of the original Activision. Uh, the machine was codenamed Lorraine during early development. Uh, and in fact, the early cases uh, of the machines, you can actually see everyone's signature scrawled and etched into the um, into the very plastic. And even uh, J Miner's dog Mitchie's paw print is on the inside of the case, if you've got an Amiga 1000 at least. Uh, here's a quote from Ars Technica. Uh, regarding uh, the uh, development of, or the, the business practices and processes. It isn't known who first came up with the idea, but the foam bats became an essential part of all design meetings. A person would pitch an idea, and if other engineers felt they were stupid or unnecessary, they would hit the person over the head with a bat. As Jay said, it didn't hurt, but the humiliation of being beaten with a bat was unbearable. Again, uh, HR practices have yeah. changed. Yeah, just... they get dropped on their head for doing that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Out the door. Just be, uh, you might want to get your things now. Physical contact. <laughs> no. Uh, should we call the police now? Or yeah. yeah. It it does sound like a very idyllic. I mean, Miner was not just like an engineering genius, but he was also like fifty by this point and very yeah right, very lovable, kind of charismatic, yeah. avuncular kind of guy. Um, and you really get, you know, he had his dog in the office, bunch of you know people dressed weird, no one minded. Is you know, you get the sense of it being a very a happy yeah. process, except for the constant fear of bankruptcy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Sounds like you had dementia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the famous things about the different motherboards of different models of Amiga is that uh, they have different titles of uh, B-52 songs inscribed on them, including Rock Lobster, Junebug, Channel Z and Party Mix. Uh, the CD-32 had a different one. We'll come to that. The first Amiga, the 1000, was released on July 23rd, 1985. Andy Warhol demonstrated the machine's graphical prowess at its unveiling. In 2015, a collection of old floppy disks belonging to Warhol was discovered containing paintings he'd created on Amiga. That's, that's amazing. Just to, just to tip in, just look, there's a really, really, really famous picture of the first ever Amiga. It was like an embryonic version. And all it was was a series of, I don't know, circuit boards with thousands. Oh. And thousands of wires, and it was yes. used to demonstrate the machine at the CES. I think it must be powerful. Yeah, it's got wires. It's got loads of wires. Lots of yeah. wires. Sorry, <laughs> not valves. Sorry, Leon. Please continue. No, that's great. Um, and the juggler demo is a famous thing. I saw it running in the uh, window of Computer Gamer uh, in Brighton in East Street for many years. Uh, so, I mean, to look at it now, it's hard to imagine uh, that this was something that would make your eyes pop. Uh, can anyone describe the juggler demo for our listeners? I can give it a uh, shot, uh, unless you want to do it. We can no, both no, have no. A go. no. So I remember at Tunnel Court Road, because I'm from them Londons, and yeah. uh, so I remember seeing a shot where, sorry, what's that? And I think the thing that struck me about the juggler is that it's like this um, puppet juggler fellow made of relatively simple polygons, which is fine. Orbs actually, he's made. He's like um, the characters from the the later fighting, the Mega Drive fighting game, right. which was called Orbs, I think. So yeah, he's made up of a series of spheres, which are probably like possibly like go round shaded or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what struck me was the the ball he was sort of. Yes, three balls. Three balls. Uh, some 
They were like mirrored, weren't they? Were like reflective. Yeah, they looked reflective or glass. That's right. Yeah, and you were standing on it, like this um, this uh, checkerboard, board, which is red and white, and the checkerboard was being reflected on the balls as they were ta- as as the juggler was doing his thing. It, it was hard to believe it was real. Yeah, uh, like this was around the same time as the famous Dire Straits "Money for Nothing" mm-hmm. video, which was. Uh, not made on Amigas, but an early example of kind of CG going mainstream. TV companies were starting to use it. But uh, to think that you could have a machine in your house from the mid 80s that could do stuff like you were seeing on telly was uh, was it just seemed impossible. And again, I know I always bring this up for context, but for those of us of a certain age, particularly the the, the elders among the Kana Rinse team, we remember at a point where even just controlling something that appeared on your TV screen was a bit mind-boggling um, because when we were very little, that wasn't possible. And then home versions of Pong started happening. And so pretty much from then on, it was just uh, just a, se- a series of, of more, more and more impossible technical, <laughs> technical leaps. Uh, we're almost getting used to it now, I think, but um, as the leaps get ever so slightly smaller. Um, but this power did not come without a price. The launch price for the Amiga 1000 was US dollars 1,295, and you needed a monitor at that point. I don't think the TV modulator was available at launch. No. Pos- no. Um, so that was another 300 bucks. So you're talking 1,600 dollars. I worked that out, adjusted for inflation to today's money. That's three thousand seven hundred ninety-six twenty nineteen dollars, which equates to almost three thousand British pounds. So this was not something that you could just buy on a whim, um, or as a you know an average income family. This was this is why it took a while for things to <laughs> things to pick up for the Amiga. And I suppose the Amiga 500 really was when that started to happen. Although the machine launched in 87, it lasted until 91. It was really the point I remember, as I already mentioned, it was Batman the movie was massive in the summer of 89. Ocean had the game license. Of course they did. They made a, a well-received game, a multi-part Ocean, classic Ocean-style game, including a quite a flashy 3D driving section on the Amiga version. And that game was put in a bundle. It had the famous Bat logo to Tim Burton's film on the box. And the price came down in October 1989 to an affordable, more affordable, £399, down from £499. The equivalent was still £893, mind you. But that pack, that Batman pack, sold 2 million units on its own. Yeah, it was an inspirational thing for Commodore to do that. I remember yeah. distinctly. I already had uh, an Amiga at the time. I remember seeing these packs arrive. I mean, I didn't have, like I said, I had a second hand one, blah, blah, blah. But I saw this. I thought, that's, that's cool. That's, that's, I like that. That's really interesting because it was jet black. And With a big gold bat. Big gold bat on it. And it had Batman written. It was just, you know, and it wasn't a game I was particularly interested in. But, uh, no. you know, it, I just really was impressed with what Commodore were doing. At the time, it popped in popped in shops. You 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 might see it in on display in Woolworths or Argos yeah, yeah, or yeah. you know all these places, and it suddenly started to you know we were so the the Amstrad Spectrum and Commodore sixty four were so embedded yeah. in our in our gaming culture at that point. It took something big like that 
and that price drop for it to finally really actually have a chance of taking over. Kim Justice uh, said uh, Commodore UK got the Amiga in a way that perhaps Commodore US didn't. I know it was big in it was big in Europe as well. There was a big scene in, in Germany and Scandinavia. But um, but I guess the profile did the Batman pack even come to America, Jesse? Do you know? No, that Batman game had no impact here, uh, which is surprising because the movie was I, I remember standing yeah. in an amusement park uh, and every time I was in a line for a ride, I was behind someone who had a Batman shaved into the back of their head. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> <And> a backpack. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it had its impact, but I never I never saw that. Game. I mean, it might have been for sale here, but yeah, definitely. There is never a moment for the Amiga here. Um, no, right. I mean, you're saying that that Batman packed Amiga sold two million Amigas because apparently that's mm. amazing because that's almost like forty percent of all Amigas. So that yep. was that was the the okay. That's amazing. I didn't realize it was that. I mean, I knew that was a big moment for so it. So I read. Yeah, it just yeah. It just caught it. You know, they caught the. Zeitgeist. It's just it's just a magical sort of meeting of minds. That that's one brief moment where marketing. Figured it out. Just that one yeah. moment, unfortunately, didn't really repeat that. Anyway, so no. Ben, did you have a uh, did you have a bat logo shaved into the back of your head? I can imagine you were that kind of kid. I, I can't, what ever would make you say that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I had several things shaved in the back of my head, but it was generally due to falling asleep first to house parties. So I mean, um, no, I can't say I ever went to. I can't say I ever went for the. The, the the Batman uh, the the Batman shaved decal on the back man. I've got a Super <laughs> Nintendo tattoo sleeve now though, so it swings around about something. You certainly have. It catches up with you at some point, right? <laughs> yeah, there's there's no growing that one. No, up. there really isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's genuinely awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh Sean McGowan from the forum says Raised on a spectrum, the sixteen bit machines arrived and magazines were packed with jaw dropping examples of games way beyond anything even my plus three could manage. I was working in an office, but still a teenager on a paltry salary. And so it was on a bank holiday weekend with 10 minutes until closing time on a Friday. I found myself in an indie computer shop in a back street in Swindon. I inquired about getting an Amiga 500 on credit. I had no idea if I was even eligible. He sighed and looked at me. You'll be wanting this for the long weekend, won't you? Yup. So he went into a back room and I don't know if he shortened the required checks to get that extra sale but I emerged with an Amiga 500. For the next five to six years, I lived and breathed Amiga. I started going to computer fairs in the big London venues, getting extra RAM, disk drives. I would buy software to pimp my operating system. Magic workbench, anyone? I believed in the Amiga so much, I bought word processing and desktop publishing software, as well as playing so many great games. And some rubbish ones. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, I'm looking at you. Oh. <laughs> the games that have stayed with me over the years are a motley bunch rather than the big names like Shadow of the Beast. It's games like Microprose Golf, which I wish I could still play. Of course, when the time came, I upgraded to a 1200, but the writing was on the wall. AGA software wasn't really worth the extra and the PC was clearly taking over. So, yeah, that Batman pack 1989 packed in with Batman the movie, the New Zealand story, one of uh, Ocean. I think that was an Ocean France joint, possibly. Oh, no, maybe not. Actually, it was an Ocean conversion that matched up pretty well with the original Taito coin op. It also came with Electronic Arts FA18 Interceptor, which was a pretty strong uh, early example of a filled polygon flight sim. I remember that being a very desirable item. And 
the ubiquitous deluxe paint, in this case, D-Paint 2. Any fond memories of making pictures in D-Paint? Did you ever come up with anything that was as good as the Tutankhamun <laughs> on the box? Not um, even close. No. <laughs> I remember using it to do some basic sort of icons and stuff, which was really good for that okay. uh, when yeah. I was doing websites back in the mid-90s. But apart right. from that, um, I didn't really use it in... Um, in the quote unquote anger, whatever that means. I wonder how many, you know, talented video artists did cut their teeth on D Paint, though. It must have been quite a few because it was a very good entry level. It was, yeah. I mean, it was utility. hugely used in Amiga games themselves. Like a lot of the oh, yeah. art was just straight from, from D Paint 2 and 3. Lemmings yeah. used it to design their levels. Uh, Worms, was it the Worms Director's Cut gave you the option to use D Paint to make levels? I think. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time as the Batman pack, uh, they also launched Commodore a 580 pound class of the 90s pack. I'd forgotten about this until I was researching today. This was attempting to sell the machine, of course, to schools and those parents who uh, still uh, were naively laboring under the misapprehension, misapprehension that these Amigas would be used for educational purposes. Uh, the class, according to the Amiga History Guide, the class of the 90s was a successful attempt at introducing the Amiga to the educational market. Schools that already had an A500 could purchase the software bundle for £150. Nice. This move was largely promoted by Commodore UK, who were eager to follow the example of Apple with a strong lineup of titles. The machine itself was an expanded 1 megabyte A500, complemented by several productivity titles, including D-Paint 2, Maxi Plan which sounds like a dietary supplement or possibly a sanitary <laughs> device. ProWrite 2.5, uh, more Deluxe Paint. Deluxe Print 2, Let's Spell, Amiga Logo. Mm. Uh, I guess, could you get a turtle for that? Oh, yeah. Uh, there you go. Uh, Jesse, explain. You're the teacher. Oh, Amiga, uh, well, Logo. What, what's a turtle? <laughs> logo. I don't know if you could get a physical one. Uh, okay. I don't know. Uh, but definitely every yeah every good educational computer has to have Logo, yeah. uh, the computer yep. language all about moving a turtle. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Dr. T music composition software and, and a BBC emulator for compatibility with older education applications. Huh. That's a, that was actually a clever move. Um, for those who don't know, BBC Model B particularly computers uh, were kind of ubiquitous in schools in the 80s. We had one where I went to school. Uh, later, we had one Acorn Archimedes, so <laughs> never any Amigas. Uh, we had some PCs uh, at sixth form. So, uh, so to have a BBC emulator was a smart move. So, so I wanted to ask, because uh, all of you, that... Right. So the UK 8-bit computer, like you had Commodore 64, but besides that, the UK did very well on the 8-bit level, at least within the UK, yeah. right? You had the Amstrad, the Spectrum, and the BBC, yep. and I think the Acorn. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so what was your feelings in terms of like the 16-bit era where you see the Amiga coming and then did, I'm not really familiar with the history of like, did they all just give up? I mean, I, I, I assume that uh, Clive Sinclair did something can, incredibly can, dumb. No, he sold off stuff. Um, uh, I, my I Leon, if I tip it at this point, yeah, they all kept trucking basically, basically for a while. They all trucked along, yeah. The uh, yeah. the some weird stuff happened though. So let's um, the sync GX four thousand does that. There's there's lots of things <laughs> happening at the same time when the sixteen bits arrived in Europe. I'm going to say Europe because I think it's more of a European wide thing as much as it is a UK thing. 
Um, mm-hmm. What happened is this. The Sega Master System arrived. It's important. Can't ignore Late. that. That arrived in the mid-80s, just at the same time as the Amiga arrived, you see. So it's all very confusing. Um, you then had uh, Sinclair selling to Amstrad. So, And then we had these you know, these strange Amstrad stroke Sinclair machines oh, yeah. rolling, rolling around. Mm-hmm. And in answer to the the 16-bit computers, uh, Amstrad decided to create this, release this rather strange um, PC-200 thing. Oh, yeah, right, It's this right, jet black right. computer, which you can still try and find to this day. It was this really underpowered 286 PC mm. running CGA graphics. It was quite horrible. But it was their answer to the ST and Amiga. Which was, just wasn't really. <laughs> Did it play CPC games? No, it just played really. Uh, it played PC oh. games really slowly. Oh, so, awesome! Yeah, uh, it was. <laughs> it was just very bad. So it was a very. It was a terrible misstep. Um, but but yeah. it, it basically had a configuration of platforms uh, for a very long time. Uh, I say very long time, but for four or five years, we had the eight bits still hanging on there. And I know yeah. from my own personal experience that. Um, I had left, quote unquote, these eight bits behind in late in '87 when I bought an ST. When I bought the ST, I sold the Amstrad off, and that was it. That was the past. That they moved on to 16 bits. So I never experienced the latter years of the eight-bit machines really because I abandoned yeah. them. And I- they had a sort of resurgence actually. Like the 64, they, as I said earlier, they 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 did a console version without keys for some reason. Um, they also kind of remodeled it and. Like for instance, the um, I think as they became more affordable, I think they kept a certain hold of uh, the the part of the market which didn't have as much money, basically. So um, like Commodore, so Zap Zap sixty four went became Zap sixty four slash Amiga, but then eventually latterly dropped the Amiga again and became a Commodore sixty four mag before becoming Commodore Force with Amiga Force launching separately, um, and certainly. When I got my Amiga in 1990, you know, for those friends of mine who did like computer games, we were all 18. So we were also all interested in smoking and drinking and drugs and girls and all that stuff as well. But certainly those friends of mine who had uh, 8-bit micros, they, they were gathering dust, but they weren't, you know, they weren't completely, it didn't feel like they were completely obsolete. Whereas for me as an Atari 8-bit owner, it did because my, my computer had never taken off over here. And it was pretty much dead by 87 anyway. So uh, so it wasn't such a wrench. I think what's really interesting, what really indicative of the time, and I wouldn't encourage you to do this after when you listeners or indeed the rest of the hosts, is that go check out the games from the late 80s and see how many platforms they were ported to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I've seen pictures of OutRun, for example. Oh, And yeah, it's absolutely. on Twitter and they just had every version of OutRun. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, there's some great videos, uh, some some great YouTube channels that do the full gamut yes. of, and that's one of the things where we come onto the the games in the second half of the show. Like, I was thinking, are there any actual Amiga exclusives? Like, yes, but barely any, mm. and virtually even all the games that we consider kind of Amiga front and center, they all got ported to everything. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Um, so yeah, it kind of. Um, the Amiga did outlast the 8-bits ultimately, but only just in a way, yeah. I would say. I, think, I yeah. hope that answers your question, Jesse. Just, just, if, you want to, if you want a physical representation of what it was like, 
Just, just <laughs> check that out. And that's what it was like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was insane, my friend. And you, crazy, you, times. crazy times. Good times, though, yeah. I think, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun. <laughs> Creative chaos. So, yeah, the pack that I got, the one that came along next uh, and also did very well, I think, was the Flights of Fantasy with Rainbow Islands and that uh, Domark Tengen port of the Atari Cornup Escape from the Planet of the Robot Monsters, which was uh, a decent port as well. Uh, they had one of those. Ben and I were at uh, Arcade Club recently. I was happy to see some people playing Escape from the Planet of the Robot Monsters. Uh, a bit of a forgotten gem, that one. Not familiar with it. Okay, it's an isometric uh, game where you uh, uh, go around shooting robots. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. So it's like yeah. I think I was playing Ghosts and Goblins at that point. You, of course, you were Ben. Of course, you were. <laughs> um, it's the same tech as uh, the same sort of cabinet tech as uh, their other games of the era, era like Seven Twenty Degrees and things like that. You, you'd absolutely know the look if you saw it. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a curious one. Um, but it was a nice to have, nice to have as a uh, a launch pack, uh, you know, a, a bundled in freebie, shall I say? Uh, F twenty nine Retaliator as well, which was a digital image design game, um, and it was a technical kind of tour de force in some ways. It was a, a very flashy looking, full solid three D vector graphics flight sim, but it was quite buggy. Um, and in fact, the version you got bundled in was a relatively early version, and this was pre-patches. So the if you went and bought it in a box, you actually got a better version than those who got it as part of their Flights of Fantasy pack. It was prone to crash and so on and so forth. But hey, it looked amazing. So who cared? Um, <laughs> following the Flights of Fantasy, the, pl- the price dropped again for the Amiga with the Cartoon Classics pack. And I think this one, again, sold a ton uh, partly because it had The Simpsons in high profile on the box. Remember remember America's favourite yellow family when they hadn't been completely flogged to death and been taken over by far less funny people? Um, this was early Simpsons, hopefully hopefully around season two to or thereabouts. Um, it also had Captain Planet in the box, which was a Tony Crowther game. wasn't the best, but... Uh, that that cartoon was big for a little bit. That was when kids cared about the, the environment. <laughs> Not like now. Uh, oh, no, wait, they really do. Uh, and Lemmings, of course, which sold uh, an enormous amount of units. Um, we haven't covered that on Kana Rince. We may do one day. It's very hard to complete. But, of course, for those who don't know, it was by DMA Design, who became Rockstar North and had some success with a little game called Grand Theft Auto. Uh, but yeah, Lemmings was kind of a massive deal. That also, I mean, that even that got that got ported to like PS3 and things. So uh, yeah, the price came down to 359 originally, making it ever so slightly more affordable. And then within six months, it dropped again to 299 pounds. So it was quite kind of caught. The Amiga was in a price war at this point, but probably people were just thinking, well, hey, and in some ways, yes, but in other ways, it was probably a sign that Maybe, yeah, maybe it wasn't sustainable. I don't know if they were actually, I don't suppose their business model was the contemporary console model of actually making a loss on each computer sold because they wouldn't have had the same license deal on selling games. That's right. Yeah, it didn't work that way. Um, You do, Mm. I did notice that you kind of stopped at the 500, the minute were 1200. um, Well, it's true. I just, you You know, you're right. I do remember. You're right. Exactly. Yeah, I do remember yeah. getting a 
for twelve hundred pack. It was bright yellow. Can't quite remember yes. what it was called. Same. Uh, yeah. Yes, it had. Um, it had. Uh, it game. had the trolls game in it. Yeah. It had the. Yeah. Find the pig stop. Yeah. That's the thing I remember about that one. <laughs> I remember they had um, Sleepwalk on it as well. So was, okay. Yeah. That was. But, yeah. Um, there, there were lots and lots more bundles. But, it's yeah, very true. I do remember looking um, at them going. Yeah, these aren't very good, and just tossing them because uh, I already had an Amiga. I was just upgrading, and I was just getting it so yeah. I could play Wing Commander. But that's for later. <laughs> yes. Uh, Simon Sloth from the forum says, a few weeks after Christmas 1991, this is around the time you got yours, Ben, my dad came home from work clutching a gigantic box and holding two large plastic bags. He told my brother, sister, and I to come into the lounge to see what he had. It was an Amiga 500 Plus bundle with two other packs of games, Arcade Action and Astra, the packs from Silica Shop. My dad's close friends were managers of Silica Shop and my mum even worked there for a bit. But despite this, my dad had never shown any interest in computer games. To say this was a surprise shortly after Christmas would be an understatement. To this day, I still don't know why he splashed hundreds of pounds on not just an expensive computer, but no less than 24 games. Aside from a bit of bubble bobble at a friend's house and a game and watch parachuting handheld, I'd never played a game before. I think back now and realise how ludicrous it was going from nothing to more games than I could dream of. Again, sounds like Ben's experience. Uh, the car part from the nothing part. The cartoon classics bundle he bought came with Captain Planet, Simpsons, Lemmings and a bonus copy of Zool. The other 20 games were a mixed bag. Some I have absolutely no recollection of, whereas Rick Dangerous, Shuffle Puck Cafe and Mike Pro Soccer were instant favourites. I still remember cheating at Shuffle Puck and Rick Dangerous's ah! with every death. My siblings and I were very quickly obsessed with the Amiga. My sister used to hide certain games to stop us beating her scores. <laughs> my brother and I pointlessly learned all the answers to the bundle Trivial Pursuit game and my dad was only called in to do the tricky bits, then quickly dismissed. A few months later, he bought Turrican 2, which he deemed inappropriate to play with us around. <laughs> what? So waited until we were asleep to put it on. The next day, rather than the bright and chirpy morning person he usually was, he was grumpy and had bags under his eyes. It turns out he'd stayed up until 3am playing it. Once I found out, I used to creep down and watch through the crack in the door. He never did it again and hasn't really played many games since. To me, the Amiga was my first entry into the world of video games, and I remember it so very fondly. Yeah, so Silica Shop was uh, perhaps the the number one uh, online ordering games emporium. Uh, their, their, their adverts were absolutely ubiquitous in every computer games magazine at this point. I think I got mine from... Yeah, no, I, of course I know I got mine from Silica Shop because I got the 10-star the pack with it, which included such... Gems as uh, the conversion of the 8-bit game Barbarian, the Ultimate Warrior, and some arcade conversions like Buggy Boy and Ikari Warriors, which were perfectly decent, but also The Art of Chess and Cygnosis' uh, completely impenetrable Terrapods. Jesse, are you going to tell me that Terrapods is actually uh, one of the, <laughs> the era's hidden gems? I've never I've... even heard of it. Good. Yes. Okay. Yeah, very weird game uh, is all I recall. I'm now curious. I mean, Cygnosis, uh, generally their games, you wouldn't call them weird. I mean, some of them, but uh, a lot of them yeah. are like straightforward shoot. You know, they're, they're incredibly impressive and flashy, but it, yes. uh, you've, you've piqued my interest. It was an odd one. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it was just, yeah, it was just amazing having 10 Amiga games uh, like Whizball, for instance. I'd never had the Commodore 64. I'd played it around with friends and I loved it. To be honest, the conversion wasn't great. It didn't maintain the feel 
of the original Sensible Software game, but I could now play Whizball, uh, and it, you know, it looked, it was higher resolution, let's say that for it. Uh, there was, yes, the Astra Pack, which also had some gems in it, including Data Storm, which to this day is one of my favourite Defender clones. Uh, it also had that uh, Shuffle Puck Cafe. Was it Jesse? Was it you? I was talking to about Shuffle Puck. Maybe. Uh, I do love that game, although I mostly played yeah. the Mac version. I think maybe we talked about it on Sound of Play or something. Okay. Maybe we were talking. Yeah. I mean, I always think of it as the game that taught people how to use a mouse kind of right. It, right. it sort of is that yeah. like, like what breakout or pong is to the paddle, like shuffle yeah. puck or, or marble madness is to a big marble. That must yes. be the context. We were talking about marble madness because we were playing that song and we were talking about like uh, controllers that say what they mean. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of us who didn't uh, go down the hooky route, like, like Ben, naughty Ben, <laughs> um, we, we were quite happy with our boxes of, of, uh, of legitimate games, albeit repackaged in little uh, little plastic cases. Yeah, storage became an issue though. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, disc boxes uh, were a thing with keys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also, yeah, uh, they had cracks in. Um, but at least the the discs were uh, more durable than their pre the flop the truly floppy predecessors. Ooh, yeah. Uh, just to go back a little bit on Silica Shop, yeah. a lot of fond memories. Sure. Of Silica Shop, I remember first yes. encountering them in the early eighties when I got in television. And they were selling all these games off really cheaply. At the time, I didn't understand because I was only about, I don't know, 10 or 11 at the time. Because yeah. that's when the market had basically fallen through the floor and America's and everywhere was just trying to sell off, you know, fire sale, everything. Um, and they, they stuck around for a very long time. And yes. uh, I remember they had a shop in Tonical Road and I used to buy some stuff. I remember buying uh, Chaos Strikes Back, which is the expansion to Dungeon Master yeah. on ST. Um, and uh, I remember buying it, and it actually had a little um, next to it. They had Cash Stocks both, and next to it, hanging next to it, and I actually bought it at the same time. Was this this oh, this plastic bag with a floppy disk and some strange instructions behind it? Turned out to be uh-huh. an editor, like a level editor for Dungeon Master. Oh wow! <laughs> so I went, oh, I'll have that as well then, because <laughs> I was a, unofficial un- or official. It was totally unofficial. It was just totally. a hack. It was uh, the earliest right. version of a, of a hack. Uh, I didn't understand it at the time, but uh, yeah, and uh, just uh, you skipped over a little bit, but uh, we did mention mercenary. We must talk about that later on. Anyway, That's, yes, it's in the eight bit eight yeah. uh, bit ports. Yeah. Um, as always with these shows, uh, listeners, we won't have time to mention every no, game. If we don't no. mention your favourite, we're sorry. But there were over four thousand games released for the Amiga, and I think once you factor in shareware, public domain freeware titles you're probably doubling that at least so uh, yeah uh so the commodore uh, filed bank the company filed bankruptcy 30th of april 1994 there was a brief period where escom i remember them being mentioned in the magazines tried to sort of get things up and running again but didn't really but this is where i'm a bit hazy on kind of what happened the the 1204000 were discontinued in 96 but i know and chris will attest to this that they kind of lived on in a way. It lived on. Um, I remember the SCOM uh, debacle. Um, they bought... Okay. Um, there, was a, uh, there was a chain of stores called Rumbelows in the UK, and yes. uh, they went under, and SCOM then bought them out, and then he had loads of Rumbelows stores, had lots of SCOM stores, and they were principally PC clone manufacturers from Germany. And they uh, 
were the uh, embryonic version of toxic loans. <laughs> they had no <laughs> assets to speak of. And uh, this became quickly apparent. Their business model was deeply flawed and they didn't last. Uh, people hoped that ESCOM would actually rescue Commodore and they did sort of buy the rights to it and bought, bought mm-hmm. the rights to Amiga, I think it was, not not Commodore name, but they bought the rights to the Amiga hardware. And they were, yeah. I remember going to various shows and lots of promises were made, none fulfilled, of course, because they, they had no money. They just basically had no money. Yeah. Uh, but um, the latter part, the Dying Eve sort of part of, it actually finished, I believe, in 1998, uh, maybe mm. 1999, when finally Amiga was, yeah, I think we're done now, and the, the, finally the uh, the PC had... Uh, Stop shocking it. Yeah. Call it. That's it. Call it's it. Gone. Yeah, call, call it. Call it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, by which time, uh, by which time the Amiga was almost a PC, and uh, I can attest to yeah. that. So and yes. uh, we can maybe talk about it a little bit now, but uh, it basically you could get a CD-ROM drive for one now. Yeah, you could get. You can play Quake you on can it. Play Quake on uh, it. You could play Doom on it. Yeah. Uh, especially. Why would you? Nobody's sure. Nobody's sure. But some people, some people swear by their format of choice, yeah. and so yeah. of course the enthusiasts kept think, the Amiga limping on in the face of yeah. all sense. I think it was the case of because <laughs> it could, not yeah, because sure. you should. Uh, and I was definitely by then. I I I I was a Jumola, so I had an Amiga, but but in '95 I bought a, a PC. We're running Windows '95, yeah. and and I was very much in PC land by then. But still had a deep, and still do have a deep affection for the Amiga as a platform Absolutely. for what it did because its operating system was exceptional. But anyway, yeah. So according to what I read, uh, the Amiga lineup would ultimately sell. Uh, an estimated five to six million machines. I originally read under five, but I've since read more than five. So somewhere between five and six million across all the different uh, incarnations, I suppose. Maybe that includes, maybe that extra figure includes the four or five hundred CD TV units that were sold. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the machines were most popular in the UK and Germany with about one and a half million sold in each country. I guess the, that means the Batman pack was also available elsewhere in Europe. Uh, the machine was less popular in North America, where an estimated 700,000 were sold. Uh, so, yes, there were many similarities in the chipset between uh, the earlier simpler one found in that Atari 8-bit family, as I said, which was the Antic GTIA and Pokey chips, uh, both designed by J Minor, according to Wikipedia, that was. Um, but the A500 had a Motorola 68000 CPU in it running at a... Uh, an amazing 7.16 megahertz or 7.09 megahertz in PAL territories. Originally, it came stocked with that 512k of RAM. Uh, you could expand it up to nine and a half megs, but even expanding it by 512k, some games don't like fast RAM <laughs> and they don't load anymore. So that was a pain. Every time the Amiga got changed, a load of your games wouldn't work anymore. That was probably one of the downsides. There was ways around it though. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but <laughs> I had I had uh, I had a trapdoor expansion of of RAM, which I got for when Indy Five Hundred came yeah. out because I wanted replays and external camera angles and whatever else. Um, and I had to take that expansion out every time I wanted to play <sighs> games like Warhead. <laughs> so, but yes, um, one of them things. I think one of the things that I fondly remembered. Uh, when re- researching this and I'd kind of, 
you know, I hadn't thought about it for a long time. Why would I? Um, something that gave the Amiga that bit of extra personality was the fact that the chips all had names. Agnes uh, later became Fat Agnes when, when Agnes got an upgrade. Uh, confusing. I, a lot of people called him Angus. Yeah. Because mm. yeah. uh, it's spelt like, it's not spelt like the lady name, Agnes. It's spelt like, anyway, it's got a U in it. Uh, the Blitter Chip, the Copper Chip, and then Denise and Paula. Sound like dinner ladies. They do. Yeah. Serving up your gaming tea. <laughs> <laughs> and that really weird food. Go on. <laughs> mm. um, so, yeah, I mean, there's not... Obviously, when we've covered our consoles, we've talked about the Mega Drives, kind of cool asymmetrical... Pla but here, I, I don't know how much there is to say about no. the Amiga's design and aesthetic. It was like a grey or creamy keyboard. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Like mine, my Amiga 500 went absolutely toxic yellow from the chain smoking that me and my friends did while playing kickoff and PGA Tour Golf. Uh, so there's that. Um, and yeah, I guess the key thing to say was that compared to the funny little old rubber keyed Spectrum and the CPC with its cassette deck built in and the Commodore 64's bread bin, it looked more like a proper grown-up computer that you might see in an office, which gave it a certain amount of cachet, kudos, and legitim legitimacy. Um, and it also obviously looked more like a grown-up's thing than the Master System and the NES that were around at the time. I remember the year. Uh, I remember the power pack was massive. It was oh, like yeah, brick. it was like the size mm. of a, a small box of Ferrero Rocher. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And like yeah. same thing though, like because where mine was set up, I had that. The only way I could work that power pack was to put it in the window, and then like it. Uh, Don't let the sun get on it. That's the thing. Sake. Do you know what I mean? One, it used to get red hot anyway. Do you know what I mean? You could yeah. like you could cook like a Sunday roast on it. And two, oh, yeah. because it was getting Melt all light, then yeah, it went to it went yellow mm. very quickly and a, a really grim looking yellow. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I have memory of mine smoking um itself uh yeah. with dust getting in and sparking uh it's a bit of know. a death trap really it looked like a jaundice at the end it was, <laughs> it was, it, standards it was horrible then. yeah very very much so yeah. like it's, don't put it on a staticky 80s carpet there's lo <laughs> there's loads of stuff you couldn't do with it do you know what i mean it's, it's basically a it's a firework <laughs> it, in it, a it's a Russia massive box. massive fire hazard the transformer isn't it just <laughs> isn't it just it really was I, I do remember replacing mine on my uh 1200 because yeah. i i wanted to get an expansion thing for it and i realized that the psu that came with the 1200 just wasn't gonna wasn't gonna get it get the power needed so i replaced it oh i've still got it this power supply in it it's it's a thing <laughs> Didn't they? Didn't didn't the government have a uh, <laughs> like a, a recall on those? I, like an amnesty? I think so. Yeah, but the one I bought was like a third party one. It's oh, it's yeah. even more dangerous. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's fine as far as I'm aware. But yeah, no. now I'm picturing you as that dog sitting in the fiery room. Yeah, it's fine. Saying it's, it's fine. fine. It's all right. No, yeah. I've had it for Not over twenty years. It must be fine. Um, on the subject once. of safety and uh, and durability of Amigas. I do remember the horror of accidentally spilling literally a third of a mug of tea into my A500. What a waste. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, mate. Yeah, that's, that's traumatic for you hearing that wasted tea. That's tough. Um, and of course, I was thinking at this point, you know, the, this Amiga had cost me so much, my mum, so much money, and I loved it so much. And uh, I was like, oh, my God. Um, it was fine. <laughs> Jesus. 
I just, you know, I kind of, it, I, I tipped it up. The tea came out the holes. Uh, I gave it, you know, gave it, put it out in the sun for a bit. It was fine. <laughs> caught, caught fire. Caught fire, but <laughs> yeah. Commodore Engineering, um, right there. Go on. They were bit. Uh, what I will say is, we'll talk about errors and stuff. But actually, the hardware side of my internal a500 drive never failed the hardware even when it some games made it make the most horrendous noise yeah i remember some bullfrog games in particular having a really weird the way the data was distributed around the disc so it was seeking all over the place but it never failed the, the motor in that thing seemed to be ironclad yeah yeah i don't my my 1200 doesn't have an internal mechanical drive anymore it has a usb mm drive thing now uh, as yeah. most modern amiga owners have they just get yeah, rid of yeah. it um but i still have an external drive so i still have that ability to hear yes. that chug 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 so i still have some floppy do- games um and yeah. uh yeah it's there's, there's a, a comforting feeling in fact so comforting that a lot of the uh, emu- cuddling one oh, no don't stop i uh a lot of uh, emulators actually <laughs> emit the sound they do they do which is lovely yes yes uh yeah Win the UAE is, uh, is the way to go if you want to go emulating. It's recorded uh, the sound. <laughs> God, it's beautiful. God. It's part of the experience. And, it, and it, yeah, it saves you going through thrift sales and car It It is literally, like, in certain adventure games and stuff, um, like, the disc loading sound is kind of, like, when that happens, you know a new scene is coming in, you know, you know. Yes. And, like, it is a weird little overture. Like, I certainly remember that on MS-DOS Infocom games, you know, yeah. that you try a bunch of different commands and you get blah, 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 and then you try one and, like, chug, chug. Huh. Aha. And um, some games even sat in RAM, of course, so you could even pop the disc. It wouldn't tell you off. A rare treat. Uh, like PlayStation discs, I guess. So, yeah, that uh, operating system, Amiga DOS, uh, run. I mean, this was the future again for those of us who'd been spent years with the 8-bit micros, Windows and mouse. It made it feel proper. Uh, a WIMP system, as they used to call it sometimes, window icon menu point. I don't know if that refers to a specific operating system, but I remember people using that. Um, it had a, a kickstart, initially a disk, but this was eventually added as a ROM or you could add it later versions as a ROM yourself. Um, by default, when you first got an Amiga, it didn't even know to auto boot games, <laughs> I think. So you had to then put the kickstart disk in to tell it to load stuff. Is that right? Yeah. 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 It, uh, it had the, uh, <laughs> it was the 500. I think the 1000 had that. But the 500, yeah. I believe it had the little, when you turned it on, you had the hand. Yes. With asking yes, you to put Workbench hand. 3.1 in. Or work, but was it right. Workbench 1.3? I can't remember. Three, yeah. Um, yeah I think it was. So, yeah. Workbench went through a few iterations. Um, this was your, basically, yeah, your kind of, your way of operating the machine. I mean, I spent I spent thousands of hours on my Amiga. I probably spent about 0.02% of my time actually looking at Workbench. But uh, but it was, yeah, so it was a relative, people have a fond affection for this, I think this interface. There's a very famous video on YouTube's. Um, with the uh, Micro Live, the uh, BBC of television course. show that was Fred Harris, Fred Harris, Mr. Harris, yeah. uh, who's now a very accomplished jazz musician, I understand. Uh, he uh, he still has an affection for all that the work he was doing there, but he was he wasn't actually enthused by the technology. He was just a pure presenter. 
That aside, yeah. um, he did a great job. Oh, it used to work. He did work. Got, you know, man's got to you know, earn a living. And uh, he demonstrated the Amiga, the Amiga 1000. And uh, what I'm, reason I'm raising this as a point is he was demonstrating the multitasking. You could do right. many, many things at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that does ring a bell. Yeah, this is, again, hard for us to get into that mindset where that wasn't the case because obviously my PC right now is running, you know, however many dozen things at once. Um, but, you know, having said that, uh, I use a different PC at work. I currently work for the NHS. That PC is not very powerful. It does one thing at once, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, multitasking was uh was the future yeah sure. and it had it had true multitasking i'm not a terribly technical person but i know that uh -huh. windows didn't have that until windows 95 and the mac didn't have it until osx in 2001 in that you weren't really running both programs at the same time right it would keep a window uh, open and then yeah you know there was sort of a, a trick there but it was just built in from the i mean the amiga is it was such a fascinating one, machine right. because it really it's the last bespoke computer in that way of just yeah. like some smart dudes got together mm. or like you know what would be good and then like built that thing out of circuit boards and then somehow got it made into chips um, like that yeah yeah, yeah. it's actual it's... multitasking multiple resolutions in the different windows mm. i um, yeah. did delve into quite heavily toward the latter part of its life uh, because cool. you had to if you wanted to get the most out of it you had to yeah. actually delve into operating yeah. system to squeeze everything. Exactly. And I had to run scripts and, you know, mm. and uh, all sorts of things. There was, a, there was a boot up script that it had to, in order to work, to get the CD-ROM to work because it wasn't really, you know, it was a thing that wasn't native to the operating system. It was like, this is weird. Um, what do you want? What is this thing? Why has it got so much memory? Can I format it? No, please don't. You know, and it would, um, it, it, it's, so I had to really delve into it. And when I delved into it, the more powerful I realized it was. And it could actually read DOS discs as well and stuff. So it was, it was, uh, it was quite a thing, quite a thing. And of course, there was a basic program. It was by Microsoft. It's <laughs> the irony. Yeah. Uh, I never really dabbled with this. Uh, th we were beyond really the era of typing listings for magazines, uh, so it would have been just too much, I think, to get your Amiga to do stuff. I do, however, remember one cover disc from, I think it was Commodore User. It had a a program that would render fractals, ah. the Mandelbrot set. Yeah. So I remember leaving my A500 on for two days <laughs> while, it, uh, while it produced a... A legitimate Mandelbrot set, and then so I finally, you know, turned my TV on. I hadn't played any games for however long it was, and there it was, a strobe, a strobing Mandelbrot set. And then I went, mm, okay, and then turned it off, <laughs> <laughs> played something else. Uh, but yeah, so the discs were uh, 3.5 inch, called floppy discs. Uh, they are floppy and disc-like on the inside, but actually. They were hard squares, not floppy disks. Um, I remember having some funky ones, some uh, multicolored packs of floppy disks, but also some really boring gray ones. I also remember making the uh, the guy who was serving me at Computer Gamer, the aforementioned shop, swear and throw things about the place. He was a very unhappy man uh, when I asked for uh, 
I think it was a hundred disc labels and he had to roll, count them out <laughs> from a roll by hand. And he dropped something as well. And he got into a right old tizzy. That's my disc memory. Mm. <laughs> they held a whopping uh, 880K of data, although later high density discs could hold twice that. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the CD-ROM came along later in the machine's life. Yeah. I'm not sure the if the Amiga uh, could see HD card uh, this though, could it? I think it was later ones, was no, it? Right, so later Amigas? No. 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 Hmm. Might be wrong. I'm sure, I read yeah, it I'll just, just imagine the comments now. I think you're maybe fine. You can, maybe you can get a special drive. Maybe. I don't know. No, no, no. Anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. The yes. next bit does though. Ooh. It's uh, one thing to just put that in perspective for maybe younger listeners, too, because for some reason, cartridge games are done in megabits, right? Yes. And that always yes. confused me. But so yeah. uh, a disc would have been about eight or nine megabits. And like Donkey Kong Country is like 32, I think. So like yeah. Donkey Kong Country, if it were an Amiga game, would be on three or four discs. Yes. So about the there's about a parody there because that was about as big yeah. as Amiga games got. Well, except later in life where we got 13 discs, <laughs> cl point and click. Yeah. And like yeah. yeah. Uh, but yes, normally in, early in the machine's life, one, one and two disc games were quite standard. Uh, but it, it did start to get out of hand uh, when the PC conversion, right. when PC, obviously hard drives started to become standard in, or were standard in PCs. So LucasArts were building games to go on hard drives. And then when they came back to the Amiga, not many people had hard drives, so they put them on. And CD-ROM, which weirdly came late to the Amiga and some people, yes. there's some comment section on Digital Antiquarian where, where he and someone are arguing with each other for ages about whether the late adoption of the CD-ROM like sank the Amiga or not. Um, I'm agnostic, but it like definitely for its otherwise impeccable multimedia capabilities was weird that it was, yeah, kind of a me too after uh, the PC yeah. started having it. Yeah. Hmm. But surely the the thing that really caught our eye, we mentioned the juggler demo, and of course, magazine screenshots were the number one currency in selling games to kids, particularly, and young adults like myself and Chris at this point. It was the graphics uh, compared to what we'd seen before. As I say, in 1986, I saw Marble Madness looking almost arcade perfect. I remember seeing an Atari ST screenshot of International Karate uh, again, at some point around that period and thinking, oh, my God, it you know it looks incredible like an arcade machine compared to uh, Commodore 64 graphics or Atari 8-bit graphics, let alone, you know, Spectrum graphics with their attribute clash or often relying on, um, you know, monochrome and, and things like that. It was it was gobsmacking and eye popping 640 by 256 resolution up to um, 32 or even 64 colors with extra half bright mode. Um, from a palette of 4,096 colors. Uh, you could even have all those all on screen at once, in, but only in a very specific mode called Hold and Modify. I remember a couple of games utilizing that in, in, in a number of ways. And uh, most of us played games through an RF composite lead uh, because we didn't really know any better. But then a friend of mine introduced me to an RGB SCART lead and I was like, oh, oh, okay, you can actually see the pixels now. Um, so that was nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think just to be clear again for for you know younger listeners, <laughs> get an understanding of what this really meant. This is at a time when 
contemporary computers at the time could not do this. Oh yeah, they, this was they couldn't do level. this. You yeah. know, the the PC for a while. I sound like an evangelist here, but couldn't do this. It was all CGA and EGA stuff, and there yeah, was low color. Low color. Yeah. Low, low, you know, it was uh, mm. four four colors or eight colors. I can't remember, but it was nearly as 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 as, uh, as bright. Yeah, and it was four and then sixteen, and the right. candy EGA era, and then you started yeah. getting. Like King's Quest Four or King's Quest Five was this weirdly big, uh, like that was a game designed to make people buy a sound card, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's like eighty nine or ninety, and then VGA. Yeah, I mean, certainly throughout the eighties, the Amiga looked. It was just like two quantum leaps ahead of everything else. It there was really like, was. That's right. It really was in many many ways. Yes, we had uh, we had sound out the box. No no need to purchase an expensive sound card. We had uh, four eight bit channels uh, with stereo, very very stereo stereo. Uh, we talked about this on our music podcast a lot. Sound of play, uh, Amiga stereo was full blown super split stereo, like old uh, when they first stereoized pop records. Everything's all in one ear or the other. Um, so sometimes when you hear music on YouTube from the Amiga now, it's been sort of rebalanced to not be quite so uh, sort of difficult on the ear. I was listening to the Turrican and OST at work the other day, getting the vibes back for this show. And uh, after a while, it was doing my head in because it's it's so on headphones. It's a bit of a nightmare. Um, but the sound capabilities were strong compared to everything that had gone before. It could play samples. You could have speech. Anyone else spend any time? Uh, just using the one of the I think I could, was it on part of Workbench a speech synthesis program, you could just type any old crap into your Amiga and it would say it back to you. And again, back in back in the day, that was extraordinary to actually make your computer talk and swear, of course. Swearing a hundred percent. I was what eleven. <laughs> that was like ninety nine percent of that entire and that entire gig. I just thought my computer could swear at me, and then I got shouted at, and I thought I better not do that again. <laughs> and then that was that amazing pronunciation uh yeah on, on a number of words as i mean well. it's so the first to... thing i do with a computer that could speak now i mean i don't think yes. i've changed that much <laughs> to yeah, be honest the only with thing, you. on the amiga you had to put in the amiga basic disc to do the 10 type uh ben cartilage rules 20 go to 10 there you go uh, yeah <laughs> uh but yeah the uh the sound of the amiga was although uh it was infamously the case that the ST was the machine that was used in professional music studios for years and years due to its built-in MIDI uh, capabilities. Actually, Game Freak used the Amiga to create music for Pokemon Gold and Silver. And more recently, even than that, Calvin Harris 2007 album, I Created Disco, which had the hit uh, Acceptable in the 80s on it, was created on an A1200, which is also where Kanye West started out making his music. So the Amiga at least has one thing to apologize for strengths and weaknesses and technical issues well i mentioned it already let's uh this is another thing like the names of the chips being funny names the fact that when things went wrong it was bad you did not want to see this screen it was black and it was red and it was frightening but it said guru meditation error the earlier versions yes the earliest version of uh the OS, um, well, Amiga OS, had this goo meditation, which is meant to be a falling back to when they were having to build this thing and it wasn't behaving and doing things it wanted it to do because, quite frankly, they're trying to make 
it do things it couldn't. <laughs> and uh, the engineers would get very, very wound up, shall we say? And in mm. true uh, um, Silicon Valley fashion, they decided to uh, enter into uh, yoga and what have you, and Buddhism, Chilling out. chill out, and decide just breathe. Everything's going to be fine. But that's where, uh, as I understand it, that's where. But sadly, it went to. Uh, it did. It, 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 they changed it, it to something drier, much yeah. much drier. Yes. Yeah, but I remember that. Yeah. That was that was what my A five hundred said to me a lot. Of it's 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 a it's the kind of in joke that could only have survived in a computer that is made by a fairly small team where no one's really closely supervising them. Um, and uh, I think it's actually also a reference to the Joy Board. Amiga had two products, right? They had their computer, but before that, they had the yeah. um, basically the very primitive Wii balance board you plugged into an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Yeah. The Tony Hawk um, ride. Yes, <laughs> board. and yeah. one of the games on that thing was, which weirdly was totally remade in Wii Fit, almost the exact same thing. Sit on this thing and make it move as little as possible. You're right. Um, yeah. And so I think that was like the guru <laughs> game or something like that. But there's definitely yeah, yeah, some yeah. Um, some, you know, in joke engineering team in joke going on there that and it's just I mean, it's probably best ultimately that they fixed it, because if someone reads that, they're just like, what is my computer what? even? But it is <laughs> fascinating to think of a computer that's like not trying to help you. And yeah, it's just it's interested just, in done. amusing itself. Yeah, I'm done. And I'm just yeah, I'm just <laughs> laughing at you now. Because I've crashed for reasons that only I know. Oh, here's some weird code that you're not going to acknowledge. And, just, you know, just reboot the machine with Amiga, Amiga Control. You'll be fine. It was better than the blue screen of death, let's be honest. Oh, yes. I mean, it was. that's the thing is, it was, it was kind of a hacker, certainly in America, right? The people who kept it yeah. alive here were hackers and then video producers, which we'll talk about shortly. But, like, it, it's a weird thing. And, like, a lot of the early American games are brilliant but amateurish in the same way that that 8-bit games yes. from 1980 or 81 might have been where it yeah, did absolutely. seem like this was this cycle repeating of like weirdos and mom and pop sort of like with a dream kind of stuff and people who like with a trs 80 in 1978 like kind of enjoyed the guru meditation error as just part of the whole you know yeah. wading through the thicket with the machete kind of experience yeah sure a uh, peculiarity that i really wasn't that aware of or bothered about at the time but is quite apparent now even when you play things on emulation at points a lot of games were presented in a very small window um, obviously you can actually if you're playing on emulation you can kind of work around this uh, fairly easily but a lot of my games were played in kind of the little windows in the corner of the screen sometimes i think it was just to do with processing power and trying to you know not have the amiga overworked and keep the frame rate up and stuff but even on ntsc machines um some games had big black borders they were off center it was a weird thing um but some game you know some games you would have like i think um some of the better coders actually managed to you know kind of fill out the screen a bit more uh, but by default it's a peculiarity Another oddity is that, as with the previous gen Spectrum versus C64, the overall less powerful machine, uh, ST in this case, would actually was actually faster at the maths required to render vectors, um, and even in some cases filled vectors. As Chris mentioned earlier, some games would actually run slightly faster in 3D on, on the ST, uh, but I think all the other pros kind of 
made the Amiga uh, still the better bet overall. Uh, slow access to floppy drive. I mean, again, to me, coming from 20-minute cassette loads that went wrong after 19 minutes. But I guess, was it relatively slow on the Amiga compared to other? Yeah. Form? Yeah, I'd, coming from right. the ST, that was quite a shock. Oh, really? Like, oh, okay. come on. Are you still chugging? Huh. Whereas Nest Never had an ST, was, so, yeah. Uh, would, would, uh, yeah it, it was a good thing to... Like I said, I had both machines. So I had both of both worlds. Yeah. And many times I'd buy a game and go, oh, that's kind of a vector raster thing. I know, I'll, I'll mm. get it on the ST. It might be better. Like, you know, the ST yeah. version of Star Wars is exceptionally good. So Yeah, yeah. For that reason. Yeah, it was much the same, as I say, with the Spectrum and C64. Yeah. The Domark versions of Star Wars for that, the C64 version was chuggy like you know one two frames a second or something whereas the spectrum version was a little bit nippier uh the lack of adoption of the hard disk drive probably you know was one of the nails in the coffin for the, for the yeah computer. I mean, they were expensive i believe that was two for 500 but not so much as 1200 yeah 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 it's a bit late by then uh we also probably have the amiga to thank for malware mm -hmm. <laughs> the first ever malware was on amiga Swiss Cracking Association created a virus in 1987 that, due to mass piracy, Ben, among Amiga users, eventually spread to around 40% of users. All it did was display this message every 15th time you booted up, something wonderful has happened, your Amiga is alive. And even better, some of your discs are infected by a virus, another masterpiece of the mega mighty SCA. Thanks to Chris Scullion from uh, RedBull.com for that. I'm pretty sure I got this at some point. Yeah, you see, I never did, and I, I pirated a lot as well. I must have, I'm just lucky at that point. I remember my mum was worried about viruses. She's still, you know, one of those people who's, she's not super, you know, she's not a Luddite. She's not totally tech phobic, but she worries. Um, she, when she bought me my external floppy disk drive for, a, I think it was the following birthday, probably. She also bought me a little dongle, which you could attach to the back, which just had a little rocker switch on it, which you could set to protect your disc. But all it was was the same as putting the tab over <laughs> on the disc. Complete con. Snake oil. Uh, and about three years ago, I found that she was paying McAfee for uh, monthly subscriptions to antivirus software. And I told her off all over again. <laughs> Uh, so the good things about the Amiga were, of course, those custom graphics and sound chips, uh, the smooth scrolling that those enabled. Uh, the ST struggled with uh, with horizontal scrolling in particular. Amiga scrolling tended to be, although some programmers still managed to get it wrong, uh, tended to be smooth. And yeah, because uh, because of the, the slots in the bottom and the trapdoor and the holes in the back, you could make the machine, you could yeah spread it out into... You could add a load of floppy drives, you could add a load of memory, you could add a load of this and that and expand it into a more capable device, which I guess, I guess is where you're at now with yours, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it's the, it's the, my, so I've got two Amigas, like I said. One's kind of, well, not quite bog standard, but it's, I mean, it's got a compact flash card for a hard drive and a USB drive for the floppy. And uh, it's got, but it's got just eight megs of fast RAM and that's that. Uh, but nothing else. But my other Amiga, it, it's it's in a tower. It's got 32 Ooh. megs of RAM. It's got an 040 CPU running at 40. It's barely an Amiga at this yeah, point. It's, it's more machine than Amiga. It's got a graphics card in it. It's just, 
It's not an Amiga it's Chris. Not... Yeah, it's like it's like Trigger's brush, mate. Do you know what I mean? It ain't yeah, like... totally. It ain't it's, an it's it's even got v... it's the sugar babes of computers. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's got VGA out. There you go. The... That's a PC, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and it can run. Yes. It can run Quake at thirty frames per second. So, yeah. So it's a crap PC. It's Brilliant. PC. Let's be honest here. <laughs> so I went nuts with it. I put my hand up. Put my hand up. I went. I went too far. There was no no one saying the hobbyist, to stop. The hobbyist among us. Because at the time, no. I had like, uh, when I was doing this, when I did that upgrade, I had a Pentium 100 PC for the bit <laughs> Complete. Because it's there, it's the there. Everest of uh, PC it's builds. It's because yeah. I could do it. I didn't think why I should. Just so I could. This is the, uh, yeah, this is the sort of computer equivalent of those people who collect motorcycles yeah, isn't it you know you you've, you've got your pride and joy but you also just like putting together all the the other the ones because yeah and it still and it not? still does work still, still. keeping the hobby alive yeah. it's all good so yeah you could buy various expansions uh sorry peripherals and add-ons of course we've already mentioned joysticks there were literally a, an enormous array of different nine pin joysticks uh, i think we've talked about some of them before but yeah you could get all kinds of crazy novelty ones in the shape of the terminator and stuff but also various classics like the bug and the zip stick and the competition just pro. on this i just want to make it absolutely mm. clear not many people know about this in the amiga it's the it, it recognizes two fire buttons yes yeah uh, you could have a mega drive yeah. pad or a wait it, it does recognize a second fire button yes some games some do, games yeah. do yeah well because i was about to say we should make absolutely clear to the younger listeners, that this is kind of the weirdest thing about the Amiga is that it is both this incredibly futuristic machine that goes until the late 90s and like almost all the games at least are in a, a 1977 Atari joystick. It's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, or yes. a mouse or, you know, of course, those sorts of games. But like if you're playing an action game, like Sensible Soccer comes out to jump. while the PlayStation's out, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. it is a game where you control it, as far as I know, with a joystick and a button. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yep. And that's fascinating. Too. I mean, like, and, and yeah. certainly a lot of games like Another World, like do an enormous, like very clever things with that yeah, yeah. limitation. But we, you know, we just uh, talked about Paradroid a few weeks back. And that mm-hmm. was a game that probably could have used a second button, although we went back mm-hmm. and forth on that. And yeah, it, I just think, it, you know, that that people who... Well, of course, we had a keyboard. Right. Uh, so a lot of games utilised yeah. extra keys, but depending on the joystick you had, that would be, could be a problem. Uh, whoever, who here among us didn't play a game where they put the actual Amiga on the floor to tap the space bar with their toe <laughs> for a smart bomb or something yeah. like that? Um, but yeah, some games did... Uh, latterly start to acknowledge a second input to to prevent the whole up to jump nightmare although i played rainbow islands with up to jump and thought nothing of it really uh got used to it um but the problem really started to show during the street fighter 2 era <laughs> we'll talk more about the, the yeah points, but, i uh, mean they managed to, they managed to cram a very good version somebody virgin managed to uh, i can't remember which team managed to cram a very good version of mortal Kombat onto one button but <laughs> other other people managed to not cram six button fighting games on. I really game. have to play that. That sounds that no, sounds like a Ulipo experiment. Yeah, I mean, the, just to, just to defend the two button scenario, Flashback I believe had two button support, and also Desert Strike 
had two buttons to pull. So did most Atari-style joysticks sold in the UK have two buttons? Or? No. No. Oh, okay. None. None. None of them. No, you could. I think I think there were a few marketed later yes. on. But it was mainly for people with Mega Drive pads or you just go and it buy it. Oh, right. Yeah. That was or the same Or a Master plug, System pad. Yeah. Same plug, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Master uh, System, same. Yeah, I, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah, Master System, that could work. Um, although, the pro tip, everyone, don't ever put that in a Commodore 64. It will, oh. it will do very bad things to the C64. Ooh, it will actually good. fuse it out. <laughs> Jesus. Good, yeah. good, good tip. Re- irrelevant here, but good tip nonetheless. Right. I like it. Uh, so the... Uh, one of the key things that was, again, originally an external matter, because the idea was you bought a monitor for your Amiga early on. One of the things that made the machine more affordable and uh, and practical for m- m- young people and families was the A520 modulator, which converted whatever signal the Amiga output into something that your, your regular old-fashioned telebox could understand. Uh, RAM expansions went in the trapdoor at the bottom. Well, they did when I had one anyway, yeah. and that was an exciting thing to buy because it opened up a whole world of stuff, but also closed, closed down, <laughs> closed down. Yeah, closed down another yeah. world of stuff. Um, before hard drives, uh, external floppy drives, yeah. you could have up to three attached to your machine, so you'd have four drives in total. Yeah, powered by the Amiga with... as well, by the way. Yeah, no extra power. No, That's poor right. power supply. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no wonder that power supply was hot. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was, uh, that was a good way of playing multi-disc games although inevitably you'd have four floppy disks in four drives and it still wanted a different disk um but yeah i never got beyond one floppy before i moved on to hard drive the null modem cable uh allowed you to serial link there's a there's a nice big list of games that enabled you to link up for multiplayer sessions with two tvs things like knights of the sky and stunt car racer Uh, you could also link Uh, up to other computers as well Okay. So I actually and played games with Atari ST. Right, so, sure. Yeah, uh, if the software allowed mm-hmm. it. Yep. Yeah. RS-232 interface leads as well, if you wanted to hook up a printer. External and internal hard disk drives. I think mine was 80 meg. Does that sound yeah. re- right? Yeah, sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. yeah, two partitions of 40 meg, mm. uh, which was lo- vast. Yeah. Um, CD drives again came along. Third-party ones. I don't, did Commodore ever release an official one? Or no, they they had pictures of it. It looked yeah, like a white right. version of this the uh, CD32, which yes, was like going to be slotted to the side of the 1200, but it never saw the light of day. No, right, okay. And then there were these, uh, which Chris has already alluded to: your accelerator cards and your Zorro expansion buses for your big box Amigas, yeah. which uh, which enabled you to turn your Amiga into a crap <laughs> well, awesome. well, well, not so like the fourth. Less crap at the time. Yeah, after well, I, maybe I... because I mean, we're going to talk about the toaster very soon. Yes. Uh, I think they they needed the Zorro slots to work. Very true. No. Yeah. No, sensible things. So, yeah, let's talk the video toaster. Uh, Jesse's pet project. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this was... Uh, what, explain what it was. It was used to visual effects for tv and videos and all yeah i mean the the amiga from the beginning had uh, an ability to lock into the frame rate on a regular tv like i was saying when i was in high school like that was pre-video toaster but you could do titles and you know superimpose things and uh it pretty primitive but like you couldn't deal with any other home computer by any means um 
And then, yeah, I mean, the video toaster, I always think of it as to the Amigo what the laser writer was to the Macintosh in terms of like, as, at least in America, the Amiga basically survived as a uh, video production kind of like, you know, expensive, but but a 20th the price of uh, a professional unit in the same way that um, desktop publishing kept the Macintosh alive through the like late 80s and early 90s. It was just the the thing this was just clearly better at than any other thing remotely in its price range. Right. Um, and yeah, the video toaster was like a card you installed in it and a piece of software that included uh, a 3D modeling piece of software called Lightwave. Um, so you mm -hmm. could make all sorts of, you know, you could make your own juggling man, you know, pretty easily probably. Um, and yeah, if anyone wants to see the original one in action, or 10 of them linked together, apparently, <laughs> yeah. uh, watch Todd Rundgren's video for the song Change, Your, Change Myself. I'm not mm. going to make great claims for the song, and, you know, I will make great claims for the video in that it is the most video toaster you could hope to see at once, <laughs> where just he cuts, like, every three seconds to a new star wipe or, like, his face in a globe that's rotating, but oh, also yeah. expanding, but also turning into I like the tentacles. bit where all the symbols of the different religions come on screen and start <sighs> sp spiraling around his face. I mean, we won't go on the stands here, but Todd Rundgren really is the perfect guy for this. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, like, but it, like, the Amiga in America did... Like the Video Toaster 4000 is 1994, and it's like a legitimate piece wow. of. It costs more than the Amiga at that point, um, yeah, and yeah. basically you're buying an Amiga as a peripheral for the toaster. Um, yeah. But they survive basically until about 2009 in local yeah. news state until the HD switchover. There were still plenty of like local news stations where it's like you know well you know how else are you going to do your star wipe how else are you going to do like your basic yeah. titling etc cetera, etc cetera. so really this was the amiga's equivalent of the st's mini yes port. yes basically yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. which you know that's the thing the st had over the amiga's the built-in mini ports yeah. which still no one knows why they're there um there is a theory yeah, <laughs> do you want to hear the theory that it was a bit of subterfuge that right that that the the question is why would there be an extra thing on a computer jack from l design yeah um and the answer is because then you could hook a synthesizer to it and kind of the salesman could disingenuously have it produce music and explain that the music you know that uh, you know sort of that there was a synthesizer mm. attached but the per customer wouldn't really understand that and they would just yeah. assume the ST could make this music on its sounded own. sounded like that, when actually it sounded like a interrupt-based 8-bit, uh, yeah. Uh, according to Ars Technica, uh, a lot of professional companies like Grass Valley would poo-poo the toaster, but you couldn't beat it on the quality. Uh, if you didn't use the built-in toaster effects, nobody could tell you were using a $5,000 Amiga system over a fifty to $75,000 system. You couldn't really tell the difference in quality. Uh, who's that? Uh, is that Miles Horvath? Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of magazines. I, I think I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying during the peak Amiga years, there were more Amiga magazines, dedicated Amiga magazines than all the other formats put together, possibly. Probably. There were yeah. so many uh, from sort of 1990 to 90. It didn't last long. No. But uh, there were stacks and stacks of them. Amiga format, CU Amiga, the one for Amiga, Amiga Action, Zap. Amiga Force, and also the multi-formats like Ace, The Games Machine, CMVG, etc. Uh, Amiga Power is perhaps the most cult classic and fondly remembered. 
Um, Pixel Hunted from the forum says, I absolutely adored Amiga Power Magazine, which I continued buying for the humour long after I'd finished regularly playing the system. Their 2% review of International Rugby Challenge was and is hilarious. I still wonder whatever happened to my favourite contributor, Jonathan Nash, who appears to have vanished off the face of the earth. Mm. He did some stuff for Superplay and then did indeed seem to disappear. Brilliant writer. Um, if you want to hear a bit more about Amiga Power, check out our recent Sound of Play 195 uh, yeah. for some Amiga Power chat. Uh, the thing I suppose I remember most, apart from buying uh, magazines that I thought were dreadful, like Amiga Action, was, you know, I was buying them for the discs. It started off with one disc per magazine, and then there was a disc war, and then there was a whole situation where they were giving away full games, some of which, many of which were abysmal, some of which were actually quite good. I remember getting uh, a game called Archipelagos, which was like a Sentinel, clone of the Sentinel, which was really cool. Um, and then this, uh, Elspur came down and said, you can't give away whole games anymore. And then they relented some years later. But in the meantime, I was buying five or six magazines a month. I was earning at this point. And the, the discs, the a number of discs, I'm sure Amiga Format were doing four or five discs on the cover at one point. They weighed a ton. Often they would be nicked while sitting in the newsagents. Any fond memories of the disc wars of the early 90s? Um, I do remember getting some real amazing bits of software on them. Um, more, it sounds a bit dry, sorry, but Octomed, I seem to remember, was, was something you could mess around with and they just gave away that free. Um, right. there, there's also... Yeah. Uh, Format and CU Amiga gave away all kinds the, of serious, serious applications. Really good application yeah. stuff and... I didn't know what to do with any no, of it. I, no, I same. I, was... I remember how big Amiga <laughs> format was. Yeah, I remember yeah, going yeah. To, I remember going to buy a, a, <laughs> the most like early 90s thing ever and, and one of those things I'll never forget ever. I remember going to buy a, a, an Amiga magazine. I went to the garage and all they had was Amiga format. Um, but I really kind of want, <laughs> I, I don't know, I just kind of fancied it. So yeah. I, uh, I went up and got it from the thing and paid for it. Got like, got home with it, opened it up and somebody, right, as, as a, a kind of, Clever shoplifting ruse, right? Had uh, mm -hmm. sandwiched a copy of uh, Reader's Wives in the uh, in the middle bit. Obviously, <laughs> the obviously the plan being to uh, stash yes. said pornographic magazine in the middle of a big Amiga magazine that nobody's going to read. Come back, save themselves some embarrassment. Exactly, come back for it later, and then Bob's your uncle. But I mean, um, I remember just just getting home and then thinking, you were the winner that day. Like, what's this pullout? Hang on. Okay. <laughs> get us get us under the bed right new direction <laughs> and then that was oh. and then that was <laughs> that was I had that all these then. crappy cover discs with utilities and no readers wives yeah, yeah. i know got it right yeah. that was that was it uh, was the driest was... of them all but the mega power for me was <laughs> readers wives steady as an american i do yes. have to ask is the name of this magazine literal or figurative <laughs> Literate, literal. Lit literate. literal. No, it's, it's literal. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. You're a fascinating. Yeah, really so it, it it was a, it used to be a section in some magazines. <laughs> it was so popular, and it was so popular. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, we can make a magazine out of this on its own. Yeah. And then yeah. Julie did. I haven't spoken for about fifteen minutes, and then I just lowered the sorry, tone so that. much. I'm really sorry. Like, <laughs> no, I'm sorry for you <laughs> no, 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 not being getting a word in edgewise. Uh, I'm sure you'll have more to say on the game. So can I just say some? Can I say something about yes, dates or advanced computer? The predictive inter predicted interest Well, there's the predicted curve. interest curve. So <laughs> that was a work of genius. I still remember yeah. being told <laughs> stories about PR companies ringing up the magazine saying, 
we don't like the shape of your pick. <laughs> Can you not have we it? We blew Jesse's mind recently by explaining what the score was. Yeah. Yeah. I only <laughs> discovered this. I, I, I guess yeah. I discovered it in the C64 context, but Ace, did it go ter- totally Amiga or was it doing both for a while and kind of? It was all, it was it all was, uh, well, the, advanced computer entertainment. Oh, okay. It was a relevance to my, um, my, my point. Because um, at the back, uh, this magazine was, they had black and white sort of, well, it's black, it was like pink and black pages. Oh, at yeah, the back. yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, they yeah, yeah. declared, the editorial declared that if you are truly a video game aficionado that you claim to be, and I'll never mm. forget this image, they had a picture mm. of an Amiga 500 and a Mega Drive. It's like, if mm. we want to have the full spectrum of video games that are huh. tippy top right now, you should own both these platforms. Well, that was me. Yeah. That was me. And here I am today yeah. still podcasting about so the I just remember that. And I just thought, well, that's yeah. if you really want an advert or like a, a pronouncement for the Amiga, then that was it. And I agreed mm. at the time, even though I didn't have an, a Mega Drive because I was PC land person. <laughs> so. so there was also, I uh, mentioned it in terms of games, but the demo scene was massive. Certainly a lot of... Uh, even coders who are still working today at places like uh, Housemark and uh, Dice came out of the demo scene. Um, a couple of strong memories I have of of public domain and shareware. Um, well, Llamatron is probably the thing I remember most. Jeff Minter had already been making games and selling them in the traditional fashion commercially, albeit from his own kind of independent uh, homebrew company. Um, he decided to release Llamatron, a surreal and typically uh ruminant filled robotron clone as a shareware game um and the idea being of course that it was distributed as far and wide as possible and the idea was that it had the it had his address in it and you basically sent a check or a postal order for five pounds or whatever you deemed worthy uh to him uh, apparently made 10k out of that which wasn't you know obviously it took him a few months to code the game um but 10k back in 1991 or whenever it was was not too bad um other memories I have are the Jesus on Ease demo, uh, which was a multi-disc epic um, of dance music, electronica, samples, mad visuals. It was like known as one of the most kind of out there sort of expressions of this scene. Um, and I actually sent off for that and, you know, got it sent to me in jiffy bags and whatever else. And also the other thing that I didn't engage with, but I've been watching some today and regretting it, Eric Schwartz's animations, which were these sort of Warner Brothers-esque five or eight minute cartoon style animations. But what I didn't realise back then is they're very furry, if you know (laughs) what I mean. (laughs) Uh, Sexy squirrels getting their tops off. or I'm not sure what she is. I don't know if she's a squirrel. Um, And various lecturers, characters, um, you know doing stuff but um but it was you know it was considered kind of top tier animation at the time um in your big boxes or bags of pirated discs did you ever see any of this uh contraband stuff ben um i, th- I don't know there was some strange stuff knocking around <laughs> i do remember it once again not wanting to back to porn yeah i don't want to yeah. but i mean that, there yeah. was a lot of that knocking around it. I remember. Yes. There was a lot of I remember these. playing some on the C64. Yeah, there was. I but, mean, uh, that that had put you off women, I'd imagine. But I mean, uh, it was much higher resolution, <laughs> yeah. than Amiga, of course. So, um, I mean, there were a few legitimate. Uh, well, I say legitimate, but um, commercially released strip poker games. But yeah. They did. They did seem to be less popular on the 16 bits than on the 8 bits, which was 
peculiar given the, the graphical yeah, I want, quality I want to of say the there was it. Yeah, a mate of mine had it. And that's the, the other thing. You've got to imagine, right? We're all 12, 13 at this point. Oh, God. One, one person got a copy of a, a Hollywood Strip Poker Pro. Did the whole rounds of the entire like oh, that's the one our entire yeah. kind of like class within about five like about five to six days. Do you know what I mean? It's it's terrible. And uh, I just, was that one um, tops only or uh, tops and bottoms? No, it was everything. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Frustra- it wasn't frustratingly good at poker. A lot of these uh, women, though. I, I, I bet it now. wasn't as everything as the one I had. <laughs> Because <laughs> the one disc, it's not a competition, Jesse. Well, but, but this has a good punchline where the one disc of, of this sort of, you know, I had a bunch of these pirated discs from my uh, stepfather's connection at, at his lab, uh, but none of them had crack screens or anything like that. So I don't know where they came from. Uh, the only one that was like pornographic. <laughs> strip poker game sh- surely had loads of crack Here he is. <laughs> there we go. Uh, this strip poker game, what I remember is that it wasn't very good at poker, so I did manage to beat it. You know, you beat it, the lady removes an item of clothing, et cetera, et cetera. Then you get, really? she's totally naked, but you're still playing poker. And I just remember being like, well, okay, I guess I'm playing poker. You win again. <laughs> she takes off her skin and is a robot. <laughs> I can't. I can't beat that. That's amazing. And that I, I will say, wow. even to this day, I'm. You know, if I'm with a new, have a new girlfriend or something, I'm still a little relieved when that doesn't happen. Yeah, Mark, yeah. Into a robot. Formative. Right. So yeah. Uh, in brief, we've already mentioned that they kept changing the machine. Um, must check in and just say, of course, when they launched the A600, it seemed like a fine idea. It was a slightly more compact unit, but of course. It meant that you could no longer play not only a lot of the game. I think the 600 was also had one meg out of the box. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that rendered it incompatible with certain old titles. And the fact that it didn't have a numeric keypad rendered it incompatible with a whole bunch of other it titles. Did, yeah. And of course, there was no way of really knowing until you bought the game <laughs> whether it needed the numeric keypad. Yeah, exactly. Dumb. So dumb. Yeah. Genius. Um, the 1200 arrived with its advanced graphic architecture, which was exciting. You know, more colors, basically, and a bit of a faster processor. I think it was like 12 megahertz yeah. instead of 7 or it something. Was a, it was 32-bit as well. So Yeah, 32-bit. Keep forgetting that. Yeah. Um, but it also brought a whole bunch of other compatibility issues. I remember loading up some games that they would load, but then the graphics would turn into garbage because, obviously, they had been coded without... This in mind, you could and, turn it off, of course. Yeah, but it didn't always work. Yeah, and he, the graders were working though. But yeah, it was yeah. more trouble than it's worth sometimes, though. But yeah, it was a pain. Yeah, it, it was never, uh, yes, never fully backwards compatible, no. and software was never future proofed, and there were no patches. So um, occasionally, games were well, quite a few games were re-released in AGA formats, um, but you know, a lot of people considered that as as they do with the remastering of games now as a kind of you know fairly easy cash-in in some cases they may have been onto something um the cdtv was uh a, an early attempt at a media box i guess um i guess one of the the things that they tried to sell it with were uh was there um well microcosm was that was that on cdtv i think it was the psygnosis game that's basically a crap sp- uh, shooter with an fmv backdrop i have a feeling that was on the cdtv um and it had a like a, a dvd style remote it wasn't really pitched as a games machine and i think it tanked as badly as the other equivalent devices from philips 
and people like that. And there's, then as the consoles came along, ahead of the PlayStation, this was 1993, the CD32, which uh, rather than B-52s had a Susie and the Banshees song title name-checked on its innards, Spellbound, and also famously a thumbprint or two from the people who'd put the uh, moulds together. <laughs> so it was always considered a bit of a cheap and nasty device with a cheap and nasty gamepad. I didn't get one. No, nor did I. No, no. interest no. about it. Bearfish Pryor from the forums says, The Amiga wasn't my first gaming experience, but it, together with the Game Boy, absolutely cemented my love for the hobby. I started off in late primary school with a ZX Spectrum Plus 2, bought with a stack of magazines and tapes, and though I did get a lot of joy from it, for years I couldn't help covet my friend's A500s and Atari STs. Alas, I didn't have the money to upgrade, and it was well outside the acceptable price range for a birthday or Christmas gift. And then, in what must have been 1991... I won a competition run by retail chain Dixon's, which unexpectedly included a shiny new Amiga 500 plus cartoon classics bundle. My 11-year-old self was instantly wowed by the jarring leap forward in graphical and audio fidelity, watching and re-watching the, to my mind, incredible intro animation of Bart vs. the Space Mutants and basking in the glorious graduated colour backdrops of so many platformers. Having been completely absorbed by the fat stack of Crash and Your Sinclair I'd inherited along with the Specky, I got all the magazines I could. Where possible, I sweet-talked the local newsagent into handing me any discs or front coverless mags he might have stashed away. I would pick up whatever had the more appealing cover disc for a while, Amiga Action, the one Amiga, Amiga Format or Amiga Power, but soon Hero worshipped the mighty Amiga Power and stuck with it to the end. And the games. Oh, the games. As with my Spectrum days, I had no real idea about genre and was still establishing my tastes, so hoovered up everything that I could afford, particularly if it reviewed well. This meant my collection spanned the gamut from sports sims to shooters to platformers to puzzlers and more esoteric fare, all of which my time-rich self would give a decent shake, uh, even if completely incompetent. Thanks to the various magazines, I also had a raft of splendid and not-so-splendid demos and PD games to while the t uh, away the time with, I later bought into the hype of the CD32, only to be a tad disappointed, though I feel I still got my money's worth of joy from the likes of Guardian, Roadkill and Liberation, and finally traded up to another much flashier grey 32-bit CD-based console. Yeah. So yeah, the Amiga was around at the same time as those 8-bits, and the ST, and the PC, and the Mega Drive, and the SNES. Uh, the Amiga kind of eventually saw off those ageing 8-bit micros, as well as the late arriving in the UK and the EU master system and NES, but was ultimately doomed really by the triple threat of more capable for gaming 16-bit consoles, ever-improving PCs, possibly slightly more affordable PCs, maybe slightly than they were, rampant piracy, Ben, as well as Commodore's failure to move with the times, and ultimately the PlayStation was, I guess, the final nail in the coffin. Every time you say piracy, it's like I bought the whole thing down myself. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like... <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, whatever. <laughs> we did pirate. We did pirate a lot, but yeah, I mean, yeah. just you're represent. You're you're you are representing the uh, the the the. The ragamuffins, the oiks, and the scumbags yeah. that brought the Amiga down. I mean, I, I, I had no choice. That's your role here. I was like twelve. <laughs> So now it's time to talk about the reason most of us had an Amiga, or the 4,250-odd reasons, uh, the games. So from they were released from spring 1986, when apparently, reputedly, 
the first ever commercially available Amiga game was a Donkey Kong clone called Monkey Business. We recently covered Donkey Kong on the Kane and Rince podcast. We mentioned some of the clones, of course. And I was going to say, I don't know really when the last commercially released game is. It, we're in funny times now. I mean, I think it's amazing, but like legitimate commercial games are still coming out for a lot of legacy systems. We've got a Commodore 64 version of Minute is on the way. We've had Mega Drive games recently. We still get Dreamcast games. As such, there is still enthusiast scene. In terms of a commercial game that you could have gone into a shop and bought, I have no idea. Probably would have been 96, 97, maybe 98, late. The ones I remember on the shelves of Electronics Boutique were Worms Director's Cut and um, Championship Manager 2, which was a disaster because it ran so slowly on May A1200. Um, and what else was very, very late? Oh, Sensible Soccer, I suppose, 96, 97. Yeah, I think the Pinball Illusions pinball games they come out that was pretty late yeah 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 yeah, that's the latest one i remember yes that was installed on my h my my a1200s hard drive so yeah that would have been that would have been quite quite late late. something like that yeah but apparently um games still come out there's uh there's been a conversion of wipeout 2097 for amiga at some point in recent years uh unofficial i imagine the frame rate on that but... <laughs> probably probably run okay on your uh your crap PC. My, my, my terrible PC, yeah, yeah, keep yeah. saying it. Um, but there's a game in the works that's due out this year at some point. I mean, it's a it's a project, so who knows? But if you go to generationamiga.com, there's a game called Aquabis, which is uh, incoming after more than three years of intense development. Um. Yeah, beyond that, I don't know too much about it. But, you know, I like these things. I like the fact these things exist. Games still coming out. So, yeah, we're going to talk about some of the notable developers. There were a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of everything. We can't possibly talk about everything. We can't talk about every publisher and developer. But some of the ones that came to mind as being relevant, first one, the Bitmap Brothers, um, even going back to the original Xenon, which was... Uh, a slightly modified version of which was featured on a Saturday morning kids show called Get Fresh, uh, which is one of the places I saw Amiga graphics. They also used, uh, there was a, it was an ST game first and foremost called Weird Dreams. Yeah, that was yeah. on another, another Saturday morning kids TV show. But again, 16-bit graphics going, oh my God, how, how I can't play that on a home computer, can I? And I couldn't until I could. Uh, obviously, Xenon 2 Mega Blast came later. That was actually not a Bitmap Brothers game. It was designed by the Bitmap Brothers, but it was developed by the Assembly Line, perhaps more famous for its music. And I suppose if there's a if there's a theme throughout, and this is something I've been talking to our Mikhail Croder about, is that the Amiga, the thing about the Amiga was it was a very broad church of games. You could get so many different genres, but in many cases... It's most arcadey games, it's platformers, it's run and gun games, it's fighting games, it's shoot 'em ups were often European designed and they were often, I think it's fair to say, lacking the quality of design and feel that a lot of their Japanese Mega Drive and Super Nintendo and even NES and Master System uh, sort of counterparts had. So there were obviously there were some amazing games on the Amiga, 
but I think a lot of the the most arcadey stuff has probably aged some of the worst in some ways. Yeah, I I'm not a fan of Xenon Two. I'm gonna say it. I played it, and it's not a game I like to play. Um, there's lots of problems with it. Gods is another one which was recently remade and re-released on the yeah. uh, Xbox One, and uh, two very few glowing very reviews. Very few, indeed. yes. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, Amiga Power dubbed it plods, even at the yeah. time for being. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I loved it. I loved it, but uh, but it was it was slow, and um, it had some interesting stuff. Talking about influence of Japanese developers, it was one of the games that uh, had a kind of um, a ranking system in the background, basically adjusting the difficulty on the fly based on how well you were doing, same as Swift did, uh, which was pretty neat. Uh, yeah, again, another good example, Magic Pockets, lots of technical flash, had a Betty Boo soundtrack yeah. license from Renegade Records, didn't play very well. No. I didn't. But um, Cadaver's a wonderful little... Uh, isometric action adventure game, uh, which I sh- yeah, nice successor to the ultimate games. Yeah, um, um, but we can't. And of course, yeah, Speedball. Of course, they made Speedball, and then they kind of trumped it with Speedball Two. Yeah. Um, and again, this is a game that I think a lot of people associate with the Amiga, but it was also on the ST. It came to consoles as well. Yeah. Uh, I got lewd talking about games we're mastering. We were just talking in the in the break about uh, Ben's <laughs> Ben's still hitting the ghouls and ghosts hard. Games that I am really insanely good at, or were, was Speedball Two. Yeah, uh, we covered it on the Kane and Rince podcast. You played this, Ben? Uh, yes, uh, I, I played this loads at the time, and then like uh, it's really good because so many of these games came to kind of consoles. And as you talked about emulation earlier, like Amiga emulation is notoriously niggly to try and record. There's a lot of like moving parts, um, okay. and so when it when it comes to a when it comes to kind of uh, recording videos for the channel. It's such a relief if I got a dead gut an Amiga game and thought, oh, I should do that, and then found out it ended up on the Mega Drive or somewhere somewhere else, as these things did. And I did the Mega Drive version of Speedball 2 on the uh, on yeah. on the, the, the channel. Um, but, yeah, it's another one of those, like, Speedball, like, was one of those games that my mate had when I first encountered, kind of, the Amiga. And, but when I got Speedball 2, um, yeah, I played an absolute boatload of it. And, yeah, it's still, it still holds up. When I did that video, it was only a couple of years ago. I was like... Mm properly back into it again do you know yeah. what i mean it's, it's yeah. still we played it for the show you can get it a decent version on steam yeah uh so yeah uh bullfrog of course uh peter molyneux and co they had a massive massive hit with the original Populous, which i remember getting in a an ea curated double pack with sim city which was a pretty nice thing um until my one meg expansion rendered that game <laughs> unplayable <laughs> uh Populous 2 came along reviewed better but i think generally isn't as well regarded no i think the purity of populous one is i still love the flood tactic build up high yeah, just keep going flood everything they're all dead you great yeah it, had like hundreds of um hundreds of almost identical procedurally generated levels yeah. as did power monger which came power monger's one i couldn't get on yeah, no, that that was a disappointment when that came out. I remember, I think that is one of the games I bought because I loved Populous so much. And it was just, it was very fiddly. And uh, yeah, Populous, I, I've gone back and played it. That was one of the ones I played the most of in uh, high school uh, and definitely wow. over a college break. There was one time I do remember, the thing about Populous is it had that heartbeat, right? And it's a very hypnotic mm. game. Like playing it now, I'm like, this is a little boring in game structure, but I'm still totally yeah. hypnotized by the just raising the land, lowering the land, like 
it you know the famous story about it is it started as sort of a land uh, manipulation toy and they just yes, enjoyed that yeah. so much they made a game out of it they built it in lego first if I recall. yeah and it's uh yeah. it's still kind of hypnotic but that heartbeat there's this slow as long as you're not losing there is one of the big sound effects is this slow heartbeat uh and my stepfather had speakers hooked to the amiga and i definitely <laughs> remember once over break uh, like just playing populace all night and just going into like sunrise uh, and winning level after level after level, but then finally meeting my match and starting to lose one. And I basically had a panic attack because it was just oh this setup of like six straight hours of a, you know, 70 beat per minute heartbeat that's kind of loud. And all of a sudden you and you've completely forgotten it exists and then it starts uh, speeding up and getting faster and faster. And it God. just terrified me. So, yeah, I have Cardiac. good memories. Good, good times. <laughs> yeah, I got a uh, Powermonger one Christmas. I found it incredibly atmospheric. Uh, actually, I did. It was complicated and fiddly, but I did. Uh, I did play a lot used to play it after night shifts at the burger bar where I was earning the money to pay for all these games. Uh, my friend used to come around and we used to play until the early hours of the morning. A few years later, Syndicate came along, the cyberpunk hyper-violent classic, uh, which has since spawned uh, a sequel, Syndicate Wars, and a reboot from EA some years later by um, Starbreeze, I think it was. Yeah, wasn't it? it was, yeah. Uh, but um, the original Syndicate, again, it also came out on other formats, came out on PC and stuff. Um, but it was a bit of a classic in isometric. Yeah, massively into that. Another thing as well for, from that was, uh, and obviously being the uh, being the, the voice of piracy on this one, um, when, when I was able to get a, a copy of a game like that, you can only yeah. imagine how complex it was having no instructions and mm -hmm. trying to figure out what was oh, happening. Oh, God. And God. not having the internet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and not, right. not having anybody who played it to the point of where I don't even know where half these games came from. Somebody would no. just come in and be like, oh, somebody's cracked this. And then you'd like borrow the disc, copy it to bring it back into the next person. And then in a space of a short amount of time, or you'd make a couple of copies yourself and then everybody would distribute them all. So like your whole class would have it within about three days. And then the next couple of days, everyone was like, it'd just be like, like so often it breaks, it'd turn into some big kind of like, meeting do you know what i mean Group between tutorial. all of us yeah we'll be like yeah. right then okay this does this and this does that but once i'd figure say did you work out the little influence uh you know sliders on syndicate which was quite a complicated analog idea of different like feeding you the idea is you had these cyborg agents and you were feeding them different amounts of um hormones sort of, uh, yeah endorphins yeah, wasn't hormones. It? yeah endorphins and whatever yeah yeah i, I remember like um i remember like messing around with it so much that I kind of had a basic grasp of of of, of what it was, but just the the central idea of like uh, waiting bit waiting around the other side of a corner as somebody ran out and then setting them on fire <laughs> was like was like a, oh, was like a, it was like a horrifically hardcore you've been framed, which uh, which really appealed yeah. to me at that at that point. So uh, yeah, I do remember playing a, a boatload of that. Yeah. Way ahead of its time, uh, way 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 ahead massively. Of its time. Yeah. yeah. Mm, mm. Um. Not so much ahead of its time, and a, a game that I believe Peter Molyneux was never actually that keen on, but it was released anyway, was Flood. It was by Sean Cooper, who at the same time as he was making it, or around the same time, was actually uh, a prospective model. He was uh, a finalist in the BBC TV clothes shows Search for a Search for a Model competition, as I recall. Something like that, anyway. Uh, 
There was Theme Park later on, but really that was a PC port that didn't run very well unless you had an uh, enhanced machine. Nice idea. Um, but yeah, came to lots of other formats and worked better elsewhere. Cinemaware. So I think this some of these were system sellers in terms of the art they were displaying. I, I would say having played Rocket Ranger and uh, Defender of the Crown, um, the visuals were the thing more than the <laughs> gameplay. Defender of the Crown had virtually nothing to do in it. Um, but the art at this point, again, on a home machine, on your home telly or a monitor, was something else. And they were going... Oh, no, I like the, the, the jousting. That was good. Mm. The uh, <laughs> Defender of the Crown is... Well, it was basically a pile of art assets that they tried to make into a game. And then yes. in the later conversions... Yeah. It actually, like the ST version is better because they were they added more. They yeah. could well, and they just tightened the game design because, like the the story behind it is like classic AAA ish kind of just chaos, um, where there's so much art that was made for that game that they were never used because the designers didn't know what they were doing, and like the whole Cinemaware story is incredibly fascinating. And but but yeah, yes. but Defender of the Crown was like the first game, certainly in America. Because I think it's 86 or maybe 87. Yeah. Yeah. 86. Um, that really, like, you would see, I remember seeing it software station just being like, oh, oh okay, this is yeah, entirely yeah. new and, and amazing. Um, yes. And, uh, and yeah, Cinemaware, those were a lot of the games I played. Um, the one that's not on this list that I would highly still recommend, especially to people uh, who enjoyed, say, Heaven's Vault or maybe Reigns, is uh, King of Chicago, yeah, which right. is a really interesting narrative game that uses a system where it's kind of pulling up plot cards based on variables instead of having kind of a, a straight-on linear narrative. Um, and I played it again recently. I played it in high school, and I liked it, although I you know, didn't have the manual, wasn't tried until then. So I played it again recently. I think that game's kind of brilliant. Um, I mean, it's goofy, and like a lot of the animations are hilarious. Uh, but it's still pretty stylish. Yep, they tried, uh, or they they fairly successfully. I mean, these games, particularly, uh, it came from the desert and Rocket Ranger and Wings reviewed very well. Three Stooges less so. Um, and the TV sports games, basketball and football, that's US football, uh, looked absolutely tremendous in screenshots. Uh, less so in motion, if my memory serves. Yeah. Core Design, before they made Tomb Raider, Made a bunch of important Amiga games, I would say. Rick Dangerous, um, I mean, I've heard people compare Spelunky to Rick Dangerous, which is understandable because of the way it looks, but oh boy, Rick Dangerous does not play like Spelunky. Um, they also made the Switchblade games, which were sort of going after the console aesthetic. There was a, a very complex and rather intriguing but bafflingly difficult uh, 3D RPG action game called Corporation. Yeah, this is everywhere. Uh, it it's, was. On, it's on the, yeah. Mega, it's on the uh, Mega Drive as well, and God, yeah, of it's course. a yeah. very strange game. Uh, never got on with it, but I wanted to because it, it, you know, it appealed Same. to my, yeah. you know, uh, like deep sort of level. Because I always, even back then, always searched for the more deep and complex titles, and this is one of them. But could not. I'd love to have another go now. I really would. There were a lot of Amiga games that were, you know, very um, new and different. They didn't, they weren't quite like anything else, but also they tended to be complicated and impenetrable and on the hard side. Um, and even with the 
even if you had the manual, like yeah. a lot of this stuff was just completely new, and the, com the the developers knew how to do it, but there was no real QA in the, these days in the same way. So basically, if the developers liked it and could play it, that was fine. So <laughs> we would then have to deal with it. Um, but a lot of these games reviewed well, and then we would get them as players and be like, yeah, you had the developers explaining how to play this, didn't you? Because this is kind of confusing. One of my favourites, of course, was Thunderhawk, AH73M. I absolutely caned this game, played it non-stop for a couple of weeks, I think, and finished it. Uh, it Later, that series went on to Mega CD and PlayStation, but become a more just like a 3D shooter. This game was actually an attempt to be a sort of cinematic sim in that it uh, it was more like the flight sims. We'll talk about them. Um, it managed to cram the entire controls to a helicopter mainly onto a single mouse two button mouse it was impressive i can still remember flying and how to fly to this day although i say that if i actually tried it would probably be a disaster they also made some more cartoony uh games more traditional video game fair wolf child uh blob bubba and sticks heimdall and a sequel and premiere uh, again all these games particularly the latter two uh, had some really nice art that looked great in screenshot. Yeah, um, and also Bubble and Sticks. I seem to remember it being quite visually impressive, uh, but cartoony. Yeah, very cartoony. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, as a puzzle platformer, not sure how. There was a lot of that. Yeah, not sure how well it played though. No, mm. there's a lot of them, yeah. and this, this will be a recurring theme. Uh, EA. So yes, I've mentioned recently and before and elsewhere that uh, for for all people, you know, like to throw shade on EA these days, and I can understand why to an extent. And they've boiled down to these this handful of uh, you know reliable franchises. They used to release all kinds of crazy stuff, um, and they were known as kind of prestigious label with with a creative edge. Um, and uh, Battle Chess was one of theirs. That was a, a highly gory and <laughs> animated version of chess um there was the immortal which was another gory uh, and highly animated game a sort of uh forced perspective arcade adventure that you needed a meg for before that was normal power drone was a 3d racing game uh that was extraordinarily difficult to control but came ahead of wipeout uh there was the amusingly titled risky woods which was again more console-esque and did EA release Wing Commander? Uh, yeah, I suppose they yeah, did. Yeah, so there's their um, right to Origins. Origins Wing yeah, Commander. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so this was a PC port, obviously. Mm. Uh, it ran okay on the A1200. Yeah. Uh, I think you needed an expanded one to get most out of it. But yes. It, I do remember it coming only on four discs, not the 20 right. or so. Yes. <laughs> the PC it was version. a big deal. A game that was considered like absolute state of the art on PC yeah. coming to the Amiga in any form at it all. Was, had less color yeah. and was lower resolution, but it functioned. It did. So. It did. I remember it, Battle Chess being the most counterintuitive way to play chess in the entire world. I remember really? being like quite decent at chess, but always okay. like willing to sacrifice like pieces just so I could see. Do you know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. a, right, a, right, a right. king shoots somebody or something. Like, do you know what I mean? It was just, it was worth oh. the risk at that point. Like all yeah. I wanted to see was the animations, and like we say, then it's like it's a it's a different for kind of people who who maybe weren't there then. It's a different time. You couldn't just go on a YouTube and put in battle chess death animations. You had to kind of maybe you'd see one, like you'd see you'd probably. I remember seeing getting a checkmate with a pawn once, 
and it being the most ridiculous thing in the <laughs> entire the set of circumstances. But to see that actual animation, I remember it just completely blowing my mind. Um, and like, like, but it just it forced me to play chess in a reckless fashion, uh, which is what's <laughs> ridiculous, counterintuitive. Do you know what I mean? It's ridiculous. I yeah. literally don't think I played chess. I mean, that was definitely one of the discs I had where because I didn't have to pay money for it and it just showed up. It was like, well, I'm just going to do the fun thing. And like, yeah, all I did was play two player mode where I control both sides and nice. and did every single matchup possible. And then when a friend came over, we would do it again. Yeah. Gremlin Graphics, having had uh, already been around for a good, good number of years, making uh, making quite a lot of uh, money with 8-bit games, carried on into the 16-bit era. They licensed the MB uh, Games Workshop crossover games, Space Crusade and Hero Quest, and made successful and fun games out of those. I bet you played those, Chris. Space Crusade, yeah. Didn't really delve that much into Hero Quest, though. But understand. Yeah, I played a lot of Space Crusade. Yeah, it's a good game. Still is. But, you know, it's basically mm. Space Hulk, only dumbed down. Yes. Yeah. Which is what you need sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Supercars was a sort of overhead uh, sprint, but with missiles kind of combat yeah. game. Yeah. There's a sequel to it, too, which isn't as good. Yeah. I mean, it's just like a. Supercars 2. Yeah. It's like a. I think it just became a regular sort of racing game, didn't it? Or like a. 3D. I'm just getting it wrong. No, still have missiles in it. Oh, okay. Um, there was there was a there was quite a, a gamut of um, top down races of this ilk uh, on the Amiga. Okay. Uh, Venus the Fly Trap was a peculiar uh, game in which you played a bug and went upside down. A side scrolling game with a very colourful backdrop. Uh, there was they did some strategy stuff. Utopia and K240. I didn't play either. Of no, them. I did to it's death. Too cerebral for me. I I loved yeah. Utopia. Oh, the mm. the sight of your 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 tanks going off screen <laughs> to go and blow something up which you never saw. Ooh. Ah, and then coming back going yeah we we, we burned all the aliens up. Okay, thanks. Was this before Dune Two? Yeah, I think it might have been yeah. might be before. Yeah, I think it was. I have to check the dates. K two four O is the sequel to Utopia. Yeah, it's where right. you set on an asteroid, and you could actually have asteroids plowing into your asteroid, which is pretty bad. Such an enticing name. It is, isn't it? K two four O. Yeah. I mean, it's really got my pulse totally. racing. <laughs> yeah. Game sponsored by Sweets. <laughs> Chuppa Chuppa. Yeah. 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 There were a few of those. <laughs> uh, obviously, James Pond had penguins. Yeah. We had uh, quavers. Clumsy, uh, clumsy, uh, James Pond, uh, no, Aquatic Games had uh, thingies as well, didn't it? James yes. Pond, Aquatic Games, a penguin, some kind of penguin-like multi-game endorsement sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> incredible. I, I still fail to see the connection, really, but um, it, yeah, it was fun. Um, and then, of course, you know, it was, we were only ten or fifteen years away from airwaves and things appearing in Splinter Cell. So. I uh, I played Zool for the first time last week and was genuinely oh. unsure if that was real or parody. I. I don't know what a chuppa chup is, and it's a lollipop with a wrapper design, a logo designed by Salvador Dali, and I'm not making that up. I, wow. be I believe you. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yes, Zool was one of the many games that now be because I had a Mega Drive from 1991, I didn't care about the whole is Sonic have our US Gold going to bring Sonic to the Amiga? I was thinking, well, they might, but it'll be rubbish because uh, nearly all so US Gold's ports have been poo. And there's no way the, the Amiga can do what Sonic does. Uh, so we got loads of games like Zool. And yeah, I bought Zool and Zool 2, even though I thought Zool was pants. And Zool 2 was also pants, I thought. 
Um, I understand why people wanted these games, and I loved the the concept. These were, you know, cute platform run and gun collect 'em ups. But again, this is where the the Western design tended to be incredibly like the level design just tended to be sprawling and lazy and collision detection tended to be all over the place and um enemy placement and encounter design tended to be sloppy and yeah it's they, like they, they had just... the ingredients but yeah. they just couldn't but... put it together it's just yeah they didn't have the mastery no, that no. you could go and play you know an, a, a nest contra or castlevania game and you'd be like oh, okay that's how to do that um, yeah, and you know they were trying, and it was what we had access to. But yeah, basically, once I had a Mega Drive, games like that were less of interest. Mm. However, the Amiga was not only a machine that did stuff like that, and that was kind of the point. It was a real jack of all trades and master of some. But back in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, flight sims were not the very, very niche concern that they are now. And in fact, anyone who liked computer games tended to, you know, dabble in things like. F-15 Strike Eagle or F-19 Stealth Fighter or Gunship. I love Knights of the Sky, the World War I biplane sim, and Silent Service 2, the submarine game. Um, there was a lot of, they, you know, these, these were like 35 quid big box games with massive manuals. Um, but yeah, Microprose were releasing Civilization as well. Obviously, these were also PC games and Railroad Tycoon. These were games that you could sink hundreds of hours into. They were, and um, for me, one of the oldest games I own to this day from that era is Gunship 2000. All right. So, not there's just nothing really like it anymore, no, is there? No. Uh, yeah, I, pl- I um, played a boatload of Civilization out of that, uh, an awful yeah. lot. I remember as well, like it uh, was that like four discs? I want to say four or five. It would have been possibly. I don't remember. No, Civ only had one disc, I think. No, a hundred percent was more because I remember like um, because the. Uh, the the or it was it was at least three. They re-released it on AGA, so it might have been. That might yeah. Be, yeah, yeah. Because I remember like the uh, that had a, a thingy, didn't it? Copy protection, like um, yes. and it would ask you a question yeah. about. How do you uh, deal with that, pirate yeah. boy? Well, I just <laughs> learned uh, the the guy who, who copied it. His his dad actually had the original, and uh, he bought the instruction manual in with the technology tree, and then we photocopied it in the computer lab, and we all had a copy of it each. Because all it does is you get to a certain point. And then it says, uh, people think you aren't the real king. How would you make gunpowder? And like, there's like three or four options, and you have to pick the requisite technologies. Um, but we all had like photocopied, uh, <laughs> photocopied technology trees. If you get it wrong, all your armies leave. Everybody deserts you, so all your towns are then unoccupied, <laughs> so you can die. Um, nice. but, uh, but yeah, uh, do you know what I mean? Genghis Khan wasn't ready for the power of the photocopier, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> There's some game I was just playing, can't remember which of these Amiga games, but that it did say that there's a code sheet on a red sheet that cannot be photocopied. Yes. That, that, yeah, that was yeah. the arms yeah, race. Eventually you get the, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, or you, had like, or you had like a wheel. I want to say one of the football manager ones mm-hmm. had like a wheel where yeah. you had to position yeah, three Island had position three kind of tabs. It's ridiculous. I just waited for Brown sheet of paper in with uh, SimCity, I think. I yeah. Know. Yeah, lots of that. Uh, Mike Singleton... After having made, uh, sadly, no longer no died of cancer. Um, uh, after making Lords of Mid- Midnight on the eight bits, uh, sort of made an amazing attempt at a game with Midwinter, the original, but it was kind of broken. <laughs> it was kind of amazing, uh, sort of super ambitious, uh, multi-vehicle, Arctic-based 
tactical RPG action yeah. hybrid. It was, it was it was mad, but you could also finish it by going to the end point of the game because it was so he'd given you such freedom. You could actually just walk pretty much to the end at the start and just finish the game if you wanted to. So um, I think the sequel rectified that Flames of Freedom, but I never played it. Yeah, it's um, it promised a lot, but I think the technology available at the time couldn't match the ambition. And that did uh, struggle. It did struggle with trying to achieve what it was trying to achieve. And having multiple characters you control at the same time was the Mike Singleton thing. That's what he did. And, uh, yeah, these games were incredible, but I just think I personally have a a, a more favourable opinion on of the uh, 8-bit games he did, because I don't know why, but uh, it's just uh, they're easier to manage and cope with, whereas this the, the Midwinter games were quite overwhelming. Yep, extraordinary reviews. <laughs> despite that, I think for their ambition as much as anything. Um, and Microsoft, uh, Microprose, sorry, also released uh, Julian Gollop's latest. Uh, again, this was not just an Amiga game, but um, I played it on Amiga. UFO Enemy Unknown, also known as XCOM UFO Defense, a series that's still going to this day, as is Julian Gollop. Um, amazing game, but the Amiga version was almost unplayably slow. The uh, the turns, the alien turns, would take. Uh, hours and the character movement was ridiculous so I rebought this again on PlayStation as soon as I could um, again I expect you can play it in a playable fashion on an expanded Amiga but yeah if you try or you can play it a thousand miles an hour on a modern PC Correct. on Steam you can yeah. it's quite funny <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes uh, Ocean released an absolute ton of stuff we're going to hear for some more of them Batman the movie we've mentioned there were three Robocop games uh, the first one sold a shed load on all formats um, the third one was notable because it was uh, a 3D polygon game and came with a anti-piracy dongle in the box, which was hacked before the thing was even released. So good try. Psygnosis uh, Lemmings, we've mentioned it was a bit of a phenomenon, but they also released some other sort of very slick technical stuff um, like uh, Killing Game Show and Leander. The Shadow of the Beast games, of course. Shadow of the Beast was a system seller, even though uh, it was a turd to play, in my opinion. It was, yeah. It was um, a bad game. The sequels, the sequels were slightly less turd-like, but still stupidly difficult. But eight levels um, of parallax scrolling. Twelve, oh, actually. Sorry, yes. Twelve on, on. On, in the outdoors. Um, and a beautiful David Whittaker uh, soundtrack as well. Um, it was worth having for that. And the Roger Dean t-shirt, naturally. Um, they tried all sorts of different genres. Uh, they had a kind of... Um, simultaneous four character uh our first person rpg in hired guns walker was a uh, a s- sort of um scout walker based uh mouse and um keyboard shooter yeah. yeah you had to use keyboard to walk yeah, and mouse, mouse to, shoot. to shoot yeah uh pugsy and wiz and liz uh, were sort of cutesy character games they did a shoot 'em up called agony there was a that was their owl. Called... It was the Psygnosis Owl finally gets to go That's shoot right. a bunch of stuff. And it has the most... Yeah. I played it last week, you know, just playing a bunch of Amiga Beautiful games. Animation. Beautiful animation. average shooter, absolutely terrifying yeah. soundtrack that just sounds like it's glitching out at every second. I you, uh-huh. I recommend all these games for like five minutes at least. Like yeah, they you are... basically right. described all Psygnosis games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is that Perihelion? Yeah, this one is a weird little uh, RPG game, which uh, mm. which I uh, sort of like. It definitely is a Gnosis game and looks very pretty, but no idea what's going on. Uh, yeah, they released they released a lot of stuff in their in the big fancy 
swish looking yeah. mostly Roger Dean boxes. <laughs> I do remember the uh, hype for hired guns as well. People were really excited mm. for it. And just yeah, don't think it really delivered. Yeah. Mm. Um, I uh, just on the Roger Dean note, I think for me the funny part is that I discovered Psygnosis Games in the Amiga in the exact three month period where I knew about Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe, but did not know <laughs> about Yes. Perfect. And so I was oh. like, okay, like, why, why does mm -hmm. this look like that? And I just know, right. you know, it took me a while to figure out that connection. And I still like Roger Dean is two things. He's 70s Yes albums and weird shooter games with glitchy soundtracks. Yeah. 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 Uh, Sensible Software, again, had already had a lot of success, on, particularly on the Commodore 64. Um, they made Cannon Fodder and a less successful sequel. Cannon Fodder, I'd still, even though it did come to other formats, um, was definitely most associated with the Amiga. Uh, Megalomania was their sort of attempt at a kind of RTS game, Civ style. Very odd, uh, quite compelling. Mm. Wizkid, uh, Jesse, you've been I playing just this. played this it, and it's psychedelically strange. Robert Crumb style cover by Bob Wake. Yeah, and the game itself is it. I mean, way more than I mean. Paradroid had a little of this, but definitely feels like it is made up as it's gone along, which I know is not how computer programming works. But and I mean that in a good way of just like yeah, it's all over the yeah, place. Yeah, um, there's an there's it's an arcade game where you have to do timed crossword puzzles, and there's an adventure game card to it's fascinating yeah there's an asteroid yep. bit there's uh there's yeah um a bit that's kind of like breakout but where you're the ball um and so it continues yeah and they also made uh as well as of course sensible soccer they also did uh, a number of unique um bespoke cover disc entries including sensible train spotting unsensible soccer in which you played teams of fruit and cannon soccer, which was uh, where the ball was a hand hmm. grenade and went off sporadically. Um, uh, I also the... played cannon fodder, and I do want to just say that, like, for people who are dabbling with this stuff or never played an Amiga game, or like that is a very accessible game. Um, mm, good tutorial yes. good... until level eight or mission eight. Yeah, but like <laughs> I, I picked it back up. It was a game I had on the Jaguar because uh, again as a scavenger i picked one of those up for like 80 bucks on usenet uh with a bunch of games um and uh and that is actually how a lot of these later amiga uk games came into my consciousness like zool um but yeah. uh but yeah that game it was great then and it totally holds up now team 17 cut their teeth as 17-bit software a demo scene crew uh they released a disc box game called full contact which was a not very good but quite technically flashy you know one-on-one -on -one combat simulator they followed it up with uh things like alien breed and that got a bunch of sequels including it went off into the 3d realm when the pc started showing off with doom and uh, things like that uh they released a strider-ish type game called assassin which was notable for getting a heavily revised budget re-release uh, which is something they also did with alien breed and project x which was a super flashy shoot 'em up that was insanely difficult yeah i still remember walking to a a game yeah when they were mm -hmm. just becoming into a thing uh one of yeah. the earliest like, game stores and there it was project x on a, on a wall and it looked fantastic and uh oh, i bought a copy yeah. and then immediately regretted it <laughs> yeah yeah the uh just the re-release was slightly less, uh, but still too much. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, and they also released uh, I can't remember the name of the developer, but uh, and I think it's come out again recently on something. But Quack Q W A K, which was uh, some dude's attempt at a little single screen arcades type game with an inordinate amount of charm, which I played a lot of. Uh, US Gold released a shitload of mostly crap arcade conversions. Um, but they also had they had some interesting things as well. Emotion and vaccine, which were sort of weird ray traced physics based things. Mm. Very confusing, um, but interesting at the time. They released a top down vector graphics based sort of shoot 'em up called Rotox. Um, one of the most interesting games that I've never played is again I think the late Bill Williams yep. Jesse. Yep. Um, who made one of my all-time favourite games on the 8-bits called Alley Cat. Uh, he made a game called Knights of the Crystallion, which is kind of legendary. And I've I, I did um, dive into it in the last few weeks for about three or four hours, and I kind of got my head around it. It is it, it, like these Cinemaware games or like WizKid. Um, it, one interesting thing in this time period is games are often very theme-first, and then you just have a lot of modal kind of mini-games that connect together that each enact a different part of that theme. Um, but, you, you know, it's hard to define the genre of Defender of the Crown. Like, it's kind of a simple board game combined with yeah. little action game, you know, etc. Um, and yeah, Knights of the Crystallion is kind of a web of interconnected mini-games, some of which are like weird board games. There's an economic simulation. It comes with a book of poetry that you have to learn because it'll ask you questions about that in the action game part. Um, weirdly, it feels very influential on, um, God, that 1999 PC game that came back on iPad, um, that's based on RuneQuest. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, you got me. Um, Six Ages is the sequel. Anyway, uh, but yeah, like that kind of like, you actually have to learn the lore of this world. It came with a cassette of very atonal music. Um, it was done mm. in ham mode, uh, or a lot of it is. Yeah. So it's got like really... Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, Williams, uh, this was pretty much his last uh, game uh, other than like a, a Bart Simpson game he hated. And then he became a pastor and eventually died of cystic fibrosis, which he, he was honestly not expected to live past the age of like 15. Um, and he made it till I think 39. So like, he's a fascinating dude. Um, but yeah. yeah, Knights of the Crystallion is definitely his most ambitious game. And I was enjoying like once I was kind of wrapping my head around how the things interconnected. Um, it's it's janky, but it's pretty interesting and it's got a lot going on. I think it's Kingdoms of Dragon Pass. Yes, that's the that's one it. I was thinking of. King of Dragon Pass, yeah. which yeah, is a fascinating game Pass. in its own right. But yeah, feels yeah, it's on my phone. I'm looking at it now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just like how the economic sim ties into the narrative stuff. Um, yeah, and really... the lore and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's quite a thing. Yeah, I just made a little subsection, some of which we've already mentioned, of games that are iconic to the Amiga, but really none of them are exclusive. I was actually struggling. I guess that, you know, killer apps, system sellers, um, Shadow of the Beast, Another World, Speedball 2, the Chaos Engine, Turrican, Turrican 2, which were actually, you know, conversions of 8-bit games, Commodore 64 games, Xenon 2, Stardust and Super Stardust, which came later, and Worms. Um, I can't actually think. I think Full Contact I mentioned there it was a genuine Amiga exclusive. I can't think of any others. Knights of the like, Crystallian. Genuinely. <laughs> okay. Was that not on ST? I don't think don't, it is. Don't, Williams don't was very, uh, like, yeah, very Amiga specific. Yeah. Yeah, it might be. Might be. But yes, there really aren't many. Um, 
Now, I just wanted to mention these because in some cases they were like the best way to play, in others they weren't. Um, but for all those people who think that it's just now that they keep these evil games companies keep re-releasing stuff from previous gen games to get us to buy them all over again. Well, no, this used to happen in the 80s as well. Uh, Archon came to the Amiga, Hacker, Head Over Heels, Elite, of course, Exile, another sadly past developer as well. The Sentinel, Jeff Crammon's amazing strategy game, Little Computer People by David Crane, um, Mercenary Escape from Targ, which was an Atari 8-bit game first and foremost, was also ported to the other 8-bits. Yes, and eventually uh, became No Man's Sky. <laughs> yeah. Kind of did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only one planet in Mercy. Yeah, but it was an yeah. well, extraordinarily. The sequels had, you know, you had uh, Damocles. Oh, and okay. Mercenary three sequels, true. Had um, Damocles. Yeah, yeah mm. that um, that had uh, a whole solar, a solar system. system. To it, so, yeah. That's true. Paul Wokes, uh, another reclusive genius. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the Last Ninja uh, also got ported up from its uh, C sixty four, and kind of, I think. I think what happened in a lot of these cases, obviously the generational leap was that much more here. And in some cases, actually porting them up to the Amiga just kind of showed that a lot of what was good about those games was that their technical uh, prowess in the case of The Last Ninja. I think it was more about what it was doing on the Commodore 64 than was it actually an amazing computer game to play. I'm not, not so sure. There were a lot of platformers because it was the era of there being a lot of platformers. Uh, there was the notorious Great Guyana or Giana, never been quite sure, Sisters, uh, which was uh, not on sale for very long because Nintendo said that's incredibly like our game Super Mario Brothers. Um, but of course, it was it lived on in pirated form. <laughs> yeah, but they relented in uh, the end, didn't they? Did they? Well, I mean, the, the games, I mean, there are Great Guyana Sisters games out there, mm. but they're not. They're not the ones that are exactly like Super Mario Brothers. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, again, these games also came to other formats, ST and consoles, but James Pond 2 mm. was uh, associated with the Amiga. The, the Adams Family was on Amiga as well. Chuck Rock, Fire and Ice, Andrew Braybrook's game. Super Frog, those Zool games. Harlequin, the, Bru the Blues Brothers was a peculiar one. Uh, Lionheart, known as a technical tour de force for the Amiga. Mr. Nuts. Oh, God. No. Uh, Brian the Lion. This was the era of uh, mascot platformers, cutesy mascot yeah, platformers. Yeah, Desperate trying to taste that um, that's a hedgehog, uh, but just not. not the yeah. Sonic and the Mario. Um, but I did like Chrysalis's Soccer Kid very much. That was a clever yeah. game. Uh, yeah. Difficult, but really nifty control system uh, where the little dude who looked a bit like Sport Billy had to go around kicking footballs at folk. Uh, and there was a late entry. Which was released by Psygnosis, programmed by Dice, who of course we know now for Battlefield and so on, uh, Mirror's Edge, Benefactor. Yeah, uh, is it? Good? I streamed this about a year ago now, maybe for Retro oh, Asylum. Okay. Um, How did it hold up? No. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's uh, design issues again. Um, okay. Unfair. Like, oh, where did that come from? Like Rick Dangerous could have kind of uh, method of uh, memorization of what you're supposed to do. Which is, you know, yeah. it just, I'm just going, I'm just going to go, Harlequin was one of the first games I played on my acquired Amiga. And I was very impressed. Yep. It doesn't hold up too it, much. Uh, yeah, it's a, again, it, it plays really weird, yeah. but it's a really interesting, um, you know, audio visual experience. Yeah, visually, it's very uh, strange. Strange game. Yeah, very odd. 
Uh, Cam Ashworth from the forum says, My memories of the Amiga were being amazed at the quality of the graphics on games such as Final Fight and Lotus Challenge. I came from a pretty poor family, so realistically I had to stick with my Spectrum Plus 2 that I had bought for me some years before. It was not until some years later I managed to get my hands on one, an Amiga from Loot magazine. Remember that? It came with a cardboard box of copied games on floppy disks with crudely written labels and only one legitimate boxed game, Premier Manager. This started my love affair of football management games, which is still going strong. I'll always look back in fondness of thinking I had arcade-perfect ports of Golden Axe and Final Fight, when, in reality, this was not the case. But to a young lad, it seemed that way. So yeah, there were a bunch of successful arcade conversions. We haven't got time to talk about them all. I suppose notable ones are Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, because they weren't like they are now, just the, uh, the video files made interactive again. They were completely reprogrammed <laughs> and redrawn from basically copied from the Don Bluth originals and made into a standard, uh, you know, video game graphics. Nuts. Yeah, I had the <laughs> Dragon Slayer one bootlegged and it was six or seven discs, come to think of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you go through it quickly because it's just a bunch of qu quick time events. So, yeah, it's about seven minutes long, I think. Yeah. Dragon Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that Andrew Braybrook, uh, Steve Turner, Rainbow Islands, um, Ocean did some amazing stuff, but um, most importantly uh, was Ocean France's uh, little run with Pang and Toki, which were almost indistinguishable from the coin yeah, Pang, which Pang proved, was phenomenal. It was, wasn't it? It proved that the Amiga could, in the right hands, do much more, uh, you know, much closer... Yeah simulations of arcade machines than a lot of coders were capable of of having it do it's only now for me replaying a lot of these arcade games trying to get good at them for the channel do i realize how close amiga versions actually were thingy as well they rodland as well amiga vision that's yep. really good sales crew really, did really that good. one that was that was actually in some ways they sort of i mean it was a, taking liberties a bit but they actually improved on the coin op in some ways with rodland like they changed some of the behavior and physics uh, which was you know arguably bold but um, better than making a half-assed. You said you said port. before about uh, Mortal Kombat, and and I do remember that mm. being uh, surprisingly good. I remember, yeah, I remember, and the sequel. I remember playing a demo of uh, Mortal Kombat, um, and it only had a couple of characters for the Amiga. And I remember thinking, yes. this is all right. And uh, the the disaster that was Street Fighter Two had basically made me buy a SNES pretty much, um, yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. get get yeah. older one. Um, and uh, I was like, I didn't have a lot. I didn't have high hopes for. Mortal Kombat at all um, and then I remember playing it and I was like this is really good really really yeah, like was. I was I, I can't think now how it worked with one fire button as I'm sure everybody says and I think you it lot said that on the multi-input multi-directional input so it would be yeah like down across and then you know move and whatever yeah um, so it was just it was reading the joystick just more yeah I just remember it being yeah I remember it being like I say surprisingly good I remember that I remember nobody buying it and then the crack version of it coming out, yeah. and then everybody had it within about two days. Consoles were already uh, in the ascendancy at this point. Yes. Mortal Kombat was a big deal, but actually I would genuinely say that the Amiga version of Mortal Kombat is probably a better port than either the SNES or the Mega Drive versions uh, in some way. Yeah. And it had it had blood out the gate. Yeah, the well, SNES so, one didn't. Win-win. You know, uh, yeah, hard driving, actually, in hindsight, was probably a terrible uh, game to play, but at the time, to see that, top tier poly um you know polygon coin op on a home machine blew me away genuinely did at the time uh gold, graph gold also did an amazing port of ivan iron man stewart's super off-road which is another 
uh, sprint style game but with off-road i played the coin up again recently and yeah it's still great um r type 2 was very slow um didn't have parallax scrolling but it looked the part uh and there was an okay port of golden axe as our correspondent said three attempts at street fighter 2 uh us gold did it first quite badly then there was super street fighter 2 which is actually really decent okay port the characters are small it's one button control then somebody foolishly attempted to do super street fighter 2 as well and that was also a disaster but um there are better ways to play street fighter than on the American. yeah there's the uh anthology on the uh, xbox one for a start well yeah, yeah. and uh <laughs> and all the other all the other platforms yeah, yeah, that that's yeah. on um sometimes games came to amiga from console flashbacks a debatable one because it was almost simultaneous i remember um, yeah the mega drive but i think it was mega drive first and foremost uh we got a pc engine port in the case of parasol stars which was kind of rainbow islands 2 bubble bubble 3 by ocean really decent uh a slightly um uh, okay versions of things like cool spot and aladdin Mm. from the mega drive uh desert and jungle strike which were a bit slower than the mega drive versions but added a few things features sampled sound and stuff like that so swings and roundabouts of course fifa and madden came over with fewer buttons um i mean there is i can't think of any reason why anyone would want to play the amiga version of fifa no um, but at, it, at this point no. but it existed yeah. and it was it helped keep the amiga going i guess road rash as well uh there were a lot of shoot 'em ups as well because it was the 80s and 90s um datastormer mentioned battle squadron uh was an ea game um or released by ea and a, had a later spiritual successor called hybris and here we hear from pixel hunted from the forum who says my very first gaming memory is on the amiga my dad putting a joystick in my hand and teaching me how to play hybris he was and is always on top of new technologies and had snapped up an A500 ostensibly for work, but there was always a suspiciously large amount of games hanging round. I dimly remember him explaining the genius of Populous to me, and at one point proudly showing off how he was playing against his friend across town via the phone. I have no idea how this was accomplished in the early 90s. My mum soon got into it as well, becoming dedicated to beating James Pond. I still have the title screen music seared onto my brain after all these years. There's actually a bunch of photos of myself and my siblings gathered round her playing it, our eyes glued to the screen. Another very happy memory was spending a happy weekend with a family friend working through Secret of Monkey Island, taking it in turns to do very silly voices for each character. There was also the joy of unwrapping Street Fighter 2 one Christmas day, followed by being extremely let down by the dodgy port and the impossibility, throwing a fireball on a one-button quickshot joystick. My friends and I still played it for hours, although Dalsim was quickly banned as spamming fierce punch made him invincible. Though the arrival of a Mega Drive, the first console that was mine and mine alone, meant I spent less time with the Amiga, it will always have a place in my heart as the machine that introduced me to video games. Dave Jones, who was also Lemmings guy and GTA guy, uh, did a couple of shoot-em-ups called Menace and Blood Money. I love Blood Money. Uh, Apidia was a Japanese-style shoot-em-up uh, with an amazing Chris Hulsbeck soundtrack, and Swiv was a pseudo-sequel to a coin-up conversion of Silkworm, which is a fairly obscure Tecmo coin-up anyway, but Civ, I think, was my favourite shoot-em-up on the Amiga. Also got ported to 16-bit consoles. Banshee was Core Design's Flying Shark-type game. Not very good. <laughs> 
I did not like similar it. Similar problems. Yeah, similar problems. Lack of difficulty level, exceptionally high. It's just bad design. Yeah. Bad design. Dinaris came out of the flames of a lawsuit uh, that Activision uh, leveled at Rainbow Arts for making a game that was far too close to the R-Type game that they had planned. Peculiar story. Uh, Factor 5 coded Dinaris, or it was originally called Catechis, eventually released as Dinaris with a few changes. But then Activision, after taking legal action, then employed the same programming team to make the official conversion of R-Type to the Amiga. <laughs> and it was all right. Uh, another couple of ludicrously difficult, actually three ludicrously difficult horizontal scrollers, Crossout, Zout, and Disposable Hero, um, all just horrendous. But great graphics. <laughs> I remember playing it. My friend had the uh, UN Squadron, which obviously then was oh, was yeah. arcade and, and went. To, and when I had the SNES version, the SNES version of it was so much better. But I recognised mm. it from playing it on on the amiga and i remember that yes yeah. i do remember that being there uh, i remember that being quite decent it was a bit more arcadey like they bought kind of a more of a um like there was a shop one there in the in the amiga ver- in the snes version it was a much That's more right. kind of yeah uh, yes. whereas the the amiga one played a lot more arcadey in the the thingy of the yeah, original yeah. uh area 88 kind of coin up but yeah i remember that being yeah. quite good hmm. yeah that was a U.S. gold job. Yeah, they. I mean, U.S. gold. I, I. I was mean to them earlier, and they did. They did do some terrible ones, but they had a bunch of different teams working on these things, and a lot of times those teams were under extraordinary time pressure. Yeah. Um. And some of the teams were more talented than others, and sometimes they pulled it out the bag, and others they really didn't. Woland from the forum says nostalgia counts for a lot in gaming, and while my first and most formative love will always be the Specky, it was the Amiga that fired my imagination and blew my mind in ways I could never previously conceive and that cemented for me a love of gaming that has lasted over 30 years. Weirdly, I never actually owned one and had never heard of one until my mate's dad suddenly plonked one in his dining room with a pile of games. And what games? The following couple of years are a blur of incredible, indelible experiences that, for me anyway, represent a bigger generational leap than I have experienced before or since. The text adventures of the 8-bit era evolved for me overnight into what seemed like fully cinematic adventure experiences with releases by the likes of LucasArts and Delphine Software. The clunky, turgid trial that was Match Day 2 on the Specky was replaced by the slick, subtle and infinitely playable Kickoff 2 and Sensible Soccer. Dazzling ports of arcade classics such as Rainbow Islands and New Zealand Story burned themselves into my cortex, never to be forgotten. I could go on about my first experiences of open worlds in genuinely groundbreaking games like Midwinter and Hunter, about the first glimpses of contemporary expansive RPGs that the likes of Eye of the Beholder showed to me, and about playing Powermonger for the first time and feeling like a god. Nostalgia counts for a lot in gaming, and for me the sweet spot will always remain those endless hours on my mate Amiga. Anyone for Speedball? That's a great, great uh, post there. It's just, um... Yeah, yeah just conjures up all those memories especially when he i'm amazed we got this far without mentioning kickoff too so well done <laughs> Thank, well, thanks for him but we're about there's to there's my segue you see yeah yeah sports seamless sports games kickoff we did a show on it so we don't need to go deep on it here but uh yeah kana rinse kickoff show we also talked a bit about player manager uh kickoff kickoff two of course uh sensible soccer we've also done a podcast on and sensible world of soccer uh they were ubiquitous um, and much, 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 much played. There were loads of other sports games on the Amiga and football games in particular. 
soccer games like Striker, Manchester United, which had two sequels, Europe and PLC, uh, Premier League champions, that is. Um, there were golf was well represented, um, world class leaderboard, PGA Tour golf, which I played the living heck out of. Links, if you had a more powerful machine, uh, but not as good as the PC version. And yes, there was that Microprose Golf that Sean mentioned earlier, which was uh, Polygons, which was not the done thing at that point. Uh, Jimmy White's Whirlwind Snooker. So Archer McLean made uh, Drop Zone and then he made uh, IK or IK Plus. And then he made Jimmy White's Whirlwind Snooker, which was a, an exactingly specific and precise mouse driven snooker simulation. He followed up with Paul. Um, this was kind of a phenomenon. It was. I remember the <laughs> idle animations. We have bugs. Yeah, the balls coming yeah. to balls coming and yeah. little bugs sort of running around and like, what's going on? Like, it's just laughing at you as you're trying to... He always filled his games with um, with lots of humour. Yeah. I remember there was, like, there was a big poster of it up and, and like a big Jimmy White's Will and Snooker poster up in the computer shop I used to go to. And even as a, as a, uh, as, do you know what I mean, as a 12, 13-year-old, I remember at the time thinking, has there ever been somebody with that much money with that worse a wig? Right. The guy's a multi-millionaire, <laughs> right? And he can't even get a hairpiece. Like, look at him now, honestly. It's frightening. Do you know what I mean? If I'm worth 12 million... Right, I'm going to get a decent wig, or at least plugs. It's shocking. The game was rubbish as well. That's not... <laughs> the, um, it was worth reading Archer McLean's uh, column he did some years ago now in Retro Gamer magazine, um, where he talked about his times hanging out with Jimmy White. Amazing. Al- alcohol, women, and uh, illicit substances may or may really? not have been heavily involved. Yes. Jimmy White. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, eh? Um, international 3D tennis was uh, sensible software doing an early polygon-based sports sim. Um, frame rate may have been an issue, but it was ambitious and had some great sampled sound and featured the famous Wimbledon theme tune from the BBC. Don't know if they ever paid for that. <laughs> I doubt they did. Um, and there was also an excellent French Ubisoft tennis game called Pro Tennis Tour, and Pro Tennis Tour 2 was really rather good. One meg enhanced with extra animation. Yeah. Uh, football management was a huge deal, of course. We've done shows on Championship Manager, uh, Football Manager, Championship Manager. That started on the Amiga, in Amiga Basic, the first game. The second one was in Machine Code and ran a whole lot better. But yeah, there were so many management games. I bought all of them. The, the funny thing with Championship Manager was, obviously, once again, relating back to piracy, was by the time yeah. I got it... Um, it had been like round the school and back again. So like obviously like you'd have everybody's carpet. I remember finishing a season with like some some uh, Division Two team and putting in quite a decent score. And then looking at the high score table and it was just full of like because they'd saved it over the disc. It was just full of like people from school with like high scores. It was like such an early yeah. version of like an online oh, scoreboard because yeah, yeah. you right, could save right. you could save all. The... So by the time yeah, I yeah. got it from like people in another year, <laughs> do you know what I mean? There was just loads of people with like uh, people I went to school with who'd set high scores. I remember thinking that was really, really weird. But uh, mm. but yeah, that was it. The joys of piracy. It's, it's funny the things that stick with you. Yeah. Yeah. Also, football management games with high score tables. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, there were plenty more, um, some of which were full of bugs, some of which worked well. The Premier Manager series, Ultimate Soccer Manager, which was the one where you could also theme park style set the price of drinks and things like that outside the outside the stadium. Um, and On the Ball, which was a kind of, there was a World Cup version of On the Ball, which was kind of like an RPG soccer management game with sort of graphical interludes wow. and bits where you're 
um, where you'd get caught in bed with a page three girl and all this stuff. It was, uh, it was next level. Sounds next gen. That's incredible. <laughs> you should play it. Well, we've had a few requests to do Rockstar Ate My Hamster yeah. on the uh, on the main podcast. Um, and since you did the Minder game on your everybody YouTube loves channel, Minder. Yeah, that's uh, epic. Uh, puzzlers were a thing. It was uh, another German developed game in the I think in the style of Japanese coin op called Gemex which featured uh, sultry anime babes going, ooh, when you solved things. <laughs> uh, Pipe Dream and Pipe Mania, which you'll have played in any number of sub-games of modern <laughs> games like Bioshock. Uh, another couple of Ocean Taito uh, coin-op conversions in Plotting and Puznik. There was a series of games called Goblins, which I never played. I assumed it was a sort of Lemmings-esque thing. The most interesting thing of note to me about it was the fact that in the first game, they spelt goblins with three eyes. In the second game, they spelt it with two eyes, and in the third game, they spelt it with one eye. Wow! How do you notice that? Know, right? hmm. There you go. Also, racing and driving. Lotus Esprit uh, by Magnetic Fields for Gremlin. Uh, there was a trilogy of these. It was like having Outrun at home. Yeah, that was big. Almost. I remember that. Yeah, uh, I completed the first one. The second one had different. Uh, like weathers and stuff like that. It was all very cool. Indy 500, again, a relatively early polygon-based game. There were others at this point. There was a game called I Play 3D Soccer, uh, Graham Souness Vector Soccer as well. So people were trying this stuff. Titus, the, another French studio, did a trilogy of arcadey races called Crazy Cars. I remember playing the demo and thought these handled appallingly, but people seemed to swear by them. I think the second one was a sort of Chase HQ special criminal investigation style deal. I don't remember. Um, actually, I think I got this confused with the Supercars game earlier on. Ah, That's my different. confusion. So, yeah, Crazy Cars. Never liked these crazy, games. Super. Um, just, uh, yeah, crazy, super, super crazy. Um, but, mm. yeah, never. The handling was just off. Mm. Couldn't really deal with it. Core had a go with uh, the license of the Jaguar XJ220 Supercar. Uh, it was okay. Mm. Bit, bit dull. Uh, Stunt Car Racer was another Jeff Crammond joint, uh, which was amazing. So, good. so, so good. Again, would probably run much better on a more modern machine. The frame rate was a little low, but uh, this was a game where you drove around on elevated tracks and leapt huge distances and tried to avoid getting smushed by missing the track. It was extraordinary. You could play it in Serial Link too. Uh, Jeff Crammond also made Formula One Grand Prix, which I tried to love because people absolutely rate about this game, but the fact that I've found formula one incredibly dull and the frame rate being so low kind of killed it for mm. me yeah it's um legendary game it though, is, and the yeah. sequel even more so yeah. i think it's um it played way better on a pc at the time, so. yeah more to my taste was vroom which was by another french team called lancor domark licensed the engine and uh released it as an official f1 game this was super speedy frame rate i think it was I don't know if it was 60 frames, but it was it was very slick and, and polished. And um, I enjoyed that one. Anyone play Vroom or F1? Just me? No, I, I do no, remember I the box cover, it. but I never never played it. So. Mm. Uh, and laterly, uh, this again by some ex uh, or possibly still then um, demo coders. No Second Prize by Thalion was a polygon uh, bike game, sort of futuristic bike racing, bitronish game uh also all mouse controlled so you would tilt the bike with your with your mouse left and right mm. yeah it was, i remember it was a cover disc the last other cover disc for amiga power uh -huh. this, is, this this game was on it so uh, uh, yeah yeah 
No, I couldn't get on with it though. It's, it's not. It wasn't like. A, <laughs> it's a lot of that. It was. Yeah. Uh, it was tricky, but yes. Um, so yeah, the three D RPGs. So Dungeon Master was very much an ST thing to start with. Peculiarly, it ran perfectly well on a 512k ST, but you needed a meg to play it on the Amiga. Yeah, no, this was so popular on the Amiga that it actually, you could buy a pack that came with the megabyte uh, memory. You're right. Um, Fantastic memory. And uh, yeah, no, this is this is my number one game on the Amiga. Um, right. Like, I, I don't think I ever beat it, but boy, did I play a lot of this. And it is the one game, not the one game, but um, there's a very long... Uh, digital antiquarian piece about it that's very good and gets into the fact that it's not just a revolutionary game but like the copy protection on it was a unmitigated work of genius um yeah, right. to the point that it was like the one game you just had to buy um that it wasn't cracked until like a year or two later and by then whatever um and yeah, I think, you know, nowadays people think of Ultima Underworld as sort of occupying this revolutionary slot and that did newer things, you know, a few years later. But just in terms of like a WYSIWYG, you know, what you see is what you get. Like if you want to find a secret door, you look at the wall and you notice there's like a little stone and then you touch the stone with the cursor and the thing opens up. As opposed to, you know, you stand near a wall and hit S and you have a certain percentage chance of uh, finding a yeah. secret door. Like that alone, right. the like paper dolls of inventory of just like if you want to put a helmet on this guy, pick up the helmet and put it on his little head slot. Um, it was just it was mind boggling. It was definitely of all of these games. I saw it on someone's a kid who lived down the street, had an Atari ST. And it was really as soon as I knew I was moving into a house that had an Amiga, number one priority. Right. Yeah. Uh, and survival horror elements as well. People were terrified oh, of God, the screaming yeah. mummies. The sound. And, and, the, the, yeah. the dragon was worse. Okay. The, the, for my opinion, I mean... The, Depends on your phobias. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, I could do everything else when I finally encountered that, that beast. Oh, boy. Yeah, I had to go... Yeah, yeah the... Pantsfield, oh dear, wasn't good. Yeah. Wasn't pretty. Yeah, it uh, the yeah the the our Amiga was hooked up to those speakers, and just I would I would sit there and just totally immerse myself in it. And like level design wise and everything, I just I if people are interested in going back, some of these games are still accessible, and some of them are more period pieces. Mm. I feel like because Dungeon Master, it doesn't have an economy, right? Like all the items you find are just within this. It's almost puzzly in that way of being kind of small and limited you don't even make your own characters you like pick them from this hall of champions um it's yeah i feel like you know if a random 20 year old person who want to play a weird old rpg i think this is the first one they wouldn't totally bounce off of uh spiritual successors uh, came in the form of the eye of the beholder games very splash i remember mm, my friend jim spending hundreds of hours playing that on my Amiga because he didn't have an Amiga. He just wanted to play the game. <laughs> uh, there are a few others, uh, Black Crypt and Legends of Valor, which I think is kind of a, I don't know if it predates the first Elder Scrolls game, yeah. but I certainly think of it as a forerunner to the Elder Scrolls series in my head anyway. Mm. Um, but I guess it's a successor to the Bard's Tale games as well. Yeah. And I've got a lot of fun memories of Black Crypt when I, it comes with the book, the manual came with, maps like yeah go there look there you go Lovely. and it's like cool didn't tell you half the game though and uh there was some stuff you had to do it's brilliant 
really ingenious puzzles. Really, that's what I remember from Black Crypt. Good, good, solid game. Really enjoyed it. A couple of 2D RPGs of note that I didn't play because I didn't really understand 2D RPGs at this point uh, until the consoles, till I got to grips with them on console. But Amber Moon and Moonstone, A Hard Day's Night, uh, I know have they often crop up in lists of, you know, kind of best Amiga games, but they totally passed me by. Yeah, Moonstone was legit. I was a massive, really? yeah, massive fan of that, yeah. That was another one was... like that did the rounds within about five, three or four days. I remember him. Um, yeah, I, I beat it once. Um, it was just, it was so hard, but but so good. It's four player as well. Like, um, oh, nice. so you could like a uh, hot seat, like four player. You pick like one of four knights, and you had to kind of get him. Um, uh, you had to get four uh, four runes, one from each uh, like area of the map, and then go into the center and try and kill this dragon, and then kill this big like lightning woman. Uh, but the thing was, like, we always used to be four of us who play regularly. And we'd always used to have to either flip coins or draw straws. Uh, because if you ever started as the Red Knight, who started in the swamp, all the monsters there were solid. <laughs> so it was like, you, you were always dead first. Whereas if you got the blue or the green, like you got the grasslands or the plains, you were all right. But yeah, if you got the red, um, yeah, it was, it was all the monsters down there. I'd like one at kill animations. But yeah, I remember, I remember that. Um, yeah, it was, it was a big... Um, that, I remember like there the not being anything like that I could play on the consoles at the time. And yeah, I, right. I remember it kind of having, like you say, that's that's what you're looking for, right? You're looking for something like that, like something that that, that computer game. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And yeah, it was mm. it was it was big. Like I say, it must have. It, I remember somebody having it on Monday, and then coming in on Wednesday, and uh, somebody just having about twenty discs. <laughs> I remember taking a couple, and then that was it. Then gone. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of computer games, there were also a bunch of tons of strategy games, really, but just some of notes. Uh, Carrier Command was a big deal. It was a late eighties one. Uh, the Settlers, which was uh, a German series, I think. And I think that series is still going in some form. Could be mistaken. There was North and South, which is a uh, partially strategic, partially arcadey two-player game based on a French comic strip about the American Civil War. Yeah, I did that for the channel. I did the NES version. Um, yeah. But yeah, I had the, uh, yeah, I had the, um, I did Mega version. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. a load of fun to play yes absolutely and of course dune 2 oh. which was a pc conversion but it was the game by westwood studios that would inform the rts genre yeah basically. it was incredible absolutely that was four discs i remember that right um yeah it was 100 <laughs> percent. good we remember the disc it was four discs yeah i just remember it yeah. the really weird thing was everybody had it but then there was only me and my mate who the one who had the amiga who really like got it and enjoyed it and i remember like Everybody else then was then that week was playing like something else. Do you know what I mean? That that had come out. But I remember me and my mate Ian stayed on and still talk about playing June two now. But stayed on playing June two for, for absolutely months. Yeah. Uh, Flight Sims we already mentioned some, but there was a port of the Mighty Falcon, um, which was sort of known as a like a real beast of a serious PC flight sim. Um, I don't know. I think that again, you probably wanted an expanded machine to run that well same with birds of prey uh and these were you know proper proper hardcore type flight sims for the time at least anyway um i didn't get involved also space games of course we had already had a port of the original uh, elite but we got the sequel and again this is a game that uh, i struggled through for many many hours on uh on an a1200 but you really uh need to see this running on a a top tier Amiga to actually 
it to actually yeah. <laughs> kind of work. It was like the benchmark. Uh, it was, um, like, uh, what's that? The yeah, crisis of the Amiga. It yes, really was. Yeah, it right. was the game that yeah. uh, you, you go, okay, can I get this title sequence to run a little bit faster? Oh, look, there it goes. I mean, that's the first, that's the thing you did, you know. This is like the benchmark. Yeah. The benchmark game, you're right. And uh, good game. Not a great game, but a good game. Yeah, didn't didn't really, um, yeah. It had some issues, yeah. um, but uh, it was, yeah, like the original, hugely ambitious, despite taking up a tiny amount of space on a disc because it was all procedurally generated by numbers uh, because he's a genius. Uh, Star Glider started off as an ST game but got ported. Uh, the sequel was more Amiga-based uh, and was solid 3D, of course, most notable. Yeah. They started off as... Um, Star Glider started off as a, a, a version of Star Wars, the arcade game, um, but ended up... Star Glider 2 kind of formed the basis of the demo that would get Jez San and the Argonauts the Star Wing or Star Fox Super Nintendo wow. gig. Because um, so, most most memorable part of Star Glider 2... Was there was a weapon that would create a singularity, yeah, and then the the ships would actually fly into themselves, <laughs> explode. Yeah. It's yes. quite fun. I found it completely baffling, but quite atmospheric and impressive mm. nonetheless. Uh, Gremlin had a go at an elite style game. Federation of Free Traders uh, got a very controversially high review in one or two outlets, and then people played it and were like, "This is broken," um, but it was an interesting idea. The onboard ship had its own programmable 16K computer. It did, yeah. Uh, that's the, the thing I remember. It was terrible. It. it was just so... I tried. I really tried. Same, same, Because same, it was same. just... This is just bad, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. So, yeah, once again, the uh, media of the time letting everyone down. Warhead was cool, though. Okay. Uh, late 80s game. Uh, it's fairly short, but uh, solid 3D space game. Uh, by Glyn Williams, who had gone to work on things like the Sonic and All Stars games for uh, Sumo, uh, and it was cool. But again, it was another one that uh, didn't work if you had an expanded Amiga. So that was the end of that. Uh, there were lots of other non-LucasArts point-and-click adventures on the Amiga as the genre started to gain in popularity. There were conversions of the of the early games as well. You could play uh, Zap McCracken on the Amiga, for instance. But we had French games like Operation Stealth and Cruise for a Corpse, Simon the Sorcerer as well, of course. Uh, we had the early Revolution games, Lure of the Temptress and Beneath the Steel Sky, and some late games like Flight of the Amazon, Queen and Waxworks. There was um, Future Wars. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah, that was French yeah, as well, Yeah, you missed that yeah. one. So that's, I loved that one. Yeah, mm. I really enjoyed that, really enjoyed that. And Operation Stealth was good. No, I don't think it was good as Future Wars. Previous mm. that, but yeah, and Cruise of a Corpse is generally regarded as a bit of a classic. Agatha Christie style whodunit. Mm. Mm. Uh, one on one fighting games again. So they started off um, with 8 bit ports, basically. Uh, we had games like Barbarian, the Ultimate Warrior, with the first ever fatality. Another one, Ben, that uh, I know you, you've, you've mastered. Yeah, this season, yeah, it was good. Did you also know it was called Death Sword yeah. in other territories? Yeah, I, I did. When I was reading about that, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I found that out. I thought it was pretty cool. Good name. Yeah. So this Death is Sword. what I was confused about: is that okay. it's Death Sword in America, but like the Psygnosis game Barbarian, it would be confused Different with. Game. Right. Mm. So in the UK, were there just two games called Barbarian? No, because this was called Barbarian: The Ultimate uh... Warrior. 
but yes they were basically both called barbarian and it was confusing but uh the other one was yeah different different enough uh ik plus was a beautiful conversion of the commodore 64 archer mclean classics probably one of the reasons still to play an amiga game today in my opinion uh it was re-released on ps1 weirdly um but it wasn't quite the same uh team 17 had a go at a street fighter type thing with body Bellows and Galactic and there was an ultimate version and all sorts and later in the Amiga's life we got various attempts at Street Fighter style games some successful some not so much Shadow Fighter was well liked Elfmania didn't play well but was by Terramark um, so it was technically interesting the one that's really struck me there were two that I didn't know Capital Punishment and Master Axe um, Capital Punishment is uh, kind of a dirty horny game <laughs> um, and but the one that really stood out is fighting spirit kind of the last word in amiga fighters it runs on a standard amiga and looks like a pretty much like a neo G early neo geo fighting game it's very impressive and on the subject of things that the amiga shouldn't have attempted <laughs> the oh no just the, no yeah the, the latter years were filled with people trying to make first person shooters because doom first wolfenstein 3d and then doom became massive yeah. So, of course, people tried to do And, of course, I wanted to play them. Before I had a PlayStation, how was I going to play a first-person shooter? I bought Gloom. Um, yeah. And I run, it, I run it in a postage stamp on, in my screen with all the detail turned off, and it had one gun. And, you know, it, it satisfied me for a while. But, uh, as we said, there were uh, Alien Breed 3D games. There were games called Fears and Breathless. And Quake eventually happened. But really, if you're going to play a first-person shooter, uh, the Amiga is definitely not the place to, to be doing No, it's just not the architecture for it. It was just like, what is this? What are you trying to do here? Um, I did play the Alien 3D games, and um, yeah, they, they were, you know, mildly entertaining. An attempt. Uh, it was an interesting sort of uh, project they attempted, but... It just—I don't think they really pulled it off. If we're all, if we're all um, being honest with ourselves, when you compared it, contemporary game which was Doom, and Doom Two, it was laughable, really. And just a few honourable mentions uh, before we wrap up this very long show: uh, the Pinball Dreams trilogy and Slam Tilt by Dice, worth mentioning because people loved them. Um, the original demo to Pinball Dreams, which was the Nightmare Table, I played that. I probably played that more for longer than any other demo of any game ever. <laughs> um, and obviously pinball games have, you know, now we've got sort of multiple strands of, of popular pinball games and dice went on to be a thing as well. So uh, Tony Crowther's Captive and Liberation, mighty impressive uh, first person RPGs. We tried to play Liberation on my A1200, but it was complicated. Very. The, first, the captive was complicated as well, and uh, I never finished yeah. it. I'd love to have another go now. I'd probably be better yeah. at it, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a tricky game. Extraordinary uh, idea, but uh, yes, so ambitious. Mm. Again, uh, sorry to rewind ever so slightly. I did want to mention for those people who are curious about Eye of the Beholder, Black Crypt, and uh, Dungeon Master, the recent spiritual successor tribute was Legend of Grimrock, yeah. wasn't it? And both games, yeah. Yeah, worth worth investigating perhaps to people who are interested about that that history. Uh there were a couple of games. The first one of which, First Samurai, kinda got buried in the Mirasoft debacle, I believe. 
ended up being released on a double pack with Megalomania. Uh, but it was actually a pretty cool um, scrolling samurai hack and slash them up. I never played the second one. No, same. I played a lot of the first one. Um, yeah. I always did this thing with like longer Amiga games. I was always, I always got so far into them. And then I had a couple of games that obviously, once again, if you're getting kind of games that are pirated, you don't know how well the copy's going to be. A lot of them I'd go yes. through and then um, uh, it'd end, like, or there'd be an issue with it. And I always found, like, when I played, because First Samurai came out on the SNES as well. And I remember playing the SNES, right, I remember yeah. playing the SNES version and beating it. And I always had mm. that apprehension of putting a lot of time in the Amiga one in case it was going to get halfway through and then be like, no, we didn't copy this bit. So it's so weird you should say that because I did have a legitimate copy of First Samurai, but. The first time I got to disc two, it crashed. There you, there you go. See? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, and Hunter, which was released by Activision. Can't remember who made it exactly. Um, very much of its time in a way, but also way ahead of its time. Uh, Chris, did you play Hunter? The 3D filled polygon open world. It's like a it was like a really early proto Ubisoft kind of it's like Far Cry or um, Just Cause, but in 1990 or whatever. I don't remember. I the only open world game I remember playing on the Amiga was definitely um, the yeah, Mercenary games and and Elite, oh, right. but specifically Mercenary. Well, yeah, Hunter was kind of like a. Uh, it was in some ways a an expansion of those ideals. Um, but yeah, filled polygons, um, multi vehicles, very you know yeah proto GTA really um, in some ways. Very impressive. Again, not something you'd want to play now, but definitely worth investigation. Jesse, have you got any? Uh, have you got any knowledge of Hunter? Now, it's, now, uh, it's what, definitely worth checking it out. A curio, and uh, I think yeah, probably an influential game. Uh, and yeah, finally, Super Skid Marks and Skid Marks, uh, which were yeah, sprint esque games, but um, most notable for the fact that you could have uh, cars towing caravans or cows on wheels. Just on the thing about, um, obviously you said before about some of the shareware titles, and I see like mm. a lot of people mentioned, um, or a lot of people I was really into played a lot of uh, Scorch Tanks, um, yes. which is just incredible. Like, uh, yeah. was that that was before Worms, right? Yeah, yeah. So there was Scorched Earth on the PC, and then we got, uh, yeah, we got Tanks, the ballistics games, and Scorched. Yes, we talk a bit about those on our Worms podcast. But yeah, Scorched Tanks was incredible. I remember that. Another one, do you know what I mean? Quickly went through, yeah. and that was like a. A, a real kind of multiplayer favorite like we you could play three you play four player couldn't you on that um yes yeah re- at least yeah that was fantastic yeah and the only decent arguably version of tetris on the amiga was a completely unofficial public domain game called super twin Trist, amazing because there were multiple uh legitimate licensed attempts at tetris and they were all toilet somehow so imagine that and just because we always do it and it's fun uh, there were a lot of turkeys and in fact if funnily enough going back through those games as we've done um there's actually a lot of highly rated games that we've all we've all kind of gone mm, yeah it wasn't that great actually but there were a lot of truly like if you people who think what a bad game is now is like a you know a 65 to 70 percent game that has a few issues these were games that were irredeemably unplayable like hideous some of these um street fighter port and the human killing machine which was an unofficial follow-up to the this is street fighter one by tear uh there were a ton of these 
absolutely abysmal fighting games. I remember getting Human Killing Machine free on a cover disc and I played it once and never again. It was just astonishingly crap. Um, Gaza's Super Soccer and there were literally dozens of unplayable football games on the Amiga. High profile one was Epic, which was the much vaunted sort of Amiga somewhere between Wing Commander and Elite was the idea. It was like a space opera 3D filled polygon um, and it was kind of a dud. Uh, there was a licensed uh, game of Akira, which was notoriously worthless. Similarly, a licensed game to the Stallone movie Cliffhanger. Amazing. Did you play this one? No, it just sounds terrible. What a terrible <laughs> concept, man. Whose idea was that? Awful. Absolutely <laughs> phoning it in. Uh, there was a abysmal port of the Spectrum Classic, Chucky Egg 2. How can you get that uh, wrong? Really? Well, I know Jet Set. We see also Jet Set Willie. Yeah. Um, there was uh, as 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 much as people like to hate on those Battletoads games on the consoles. Uh, they were nothing compared to the atrocity that was Battletoads on the Amiga. Uh, speaking of atrocities based on uh, other IPs, Neighbors. Why? Yes. That Neighbors. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think you would play Todd on a skateboard. Amazing. You have to not get run over by a transit van and try not to get addicted to ghosts and goblins. You, right. I can't really oh, talk course. about that. But yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. You've got no leg to stand Yeah, not on. at and all. I think you should do Neighbours in your next season of One Credit Class. I'm probably going to do Viz, I think. Another IP tie oh, on the Amiga. That'd be hilarious. A, yes, there was a Monty Python game. There well, was, course, yeah. Which yeah. actually had quite cool Terry Gilliam-style visuals. Um, Artura, another cover disc game that was not worth the disc it was printed on. That was by Gremlin, actually. And the one I remember being reviewed in Zap before I had an Amiga was a clone of the old arcade stalwart Hunchback called Quasimodo, but spelt wrong because why not? Uh, and it got 9% nice. in Zap. Oh, nice. There you go. But there are, there are so many. Anyone got any memories? I mean, it, it probably doesn't matter so much if you've got all pirates in a box, but if you've, you know games that you bought and oh. went oh no 26 quid down the toilet I'm trying to think nothing of the brings you know there's there's road tinted glasses for you but nothing immediately springs to mind i do remember buying the ocean conversion of narc the uh right. coin up which was not you know it wasn't the worst game i've ever played it got a it got a cmvg hit i got it home and I loved the coin-op, even though it was stupidly difficult because it was so flash and violent. Uh, started playing it and completed it on my first go. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, I was quite annoyed about that. Mm. Uh, wasn't great. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, the Amiga, even though it's, uh, it burned relatively bright for a relatively short period of time, but there's a lot more of that Ars Technica series on the history of the Amiga. There's... Uh, a lengthy multi-part video by Nostalgia Nerd on YouTube, uh, Amiga Story. And there's also a lovely book from Bitmap Books, which I don't own this one yet. Will somebody buy it for me? I'm kidding. Uh, Commodore Amiga, a visual compendium uh, is worth, based on the other books of theirs that I've got, is worth the investment. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got this one. It's, it's a nice. good one. It's a good one. Yeah. So, few. That's been a long look back at the Amiga. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you guys all have too. But we need you to at least somehow wrap up 
all your thoughts into a neat little bundle um, for the listeners. One thing I want to say is we've had a few after these shows that we've done the specials already where we've had people saying, I love that show and now I'm on eBay buying the console. So I guess we do actually need to say to people, is it worth doing that? Or should you just look up the, uh, the residuals on, on, e- on YouTube or whatever? See what we think. Jesse, sum up your feelings about the Amiga. Yeah, no, I, I um, have been really happy to hear all of this because, again, I'm coming from this American perspective where I didn't really think of the Amiga, you know, uh, out in games past uh, 1991. Um, and hearing everyone's, and it was never, it never had a good year in America. You know, there was never that Batman pack. There was never a moment of mass popularity where I knew anyone else, um, who I could talk about these games with. Um, so for me, they're very kind of private picks and then, uh, you know, going back to them as an academic and just kind of looking at them, finding stuff that's interesting in terms of game design. And one game I want to mention that didn't and shouldn't have come up. But maybe my favorite game to go back to that um, I had as a teen uh, from Software Station and, uh, and, and have played again as an adult is this game. Uh, it's just called Hex, and it is by Mark of the Unicorn. And it is the only game they produced other than an action game for the Macintosh in 1984. And this game came out in 86. So they were, and they're a music studio workstation company. They're now called Motu and clearly are hiding the fact their name had a unicorn in it. Um, and we're clearly like a serious company that for some reason just made, uh, basically because they were so excited about the technology, right? And that's, to me, what's so interesting about the Amiga going back to it is it still feels futuristic in that way certain 80s things do, even though we've actually quite surpassed that technology. Um, and Hex is just a really interesting strategy game. Um, I played it on my stream and um, it's like an abstract strategy game, but like the rules inter, I won't, I won't go into detail, but that and um, by a random person have not been able to find out anything about. Uh, and in a similar way, the fairy tale adventure, which is 1986 is just by one guy who got really excited about the Amiga. Um, and just like, he was a sort of a hyper creative kind of, like a cosplay guy probably would have been today um, and just made an entire big adventure game on his own, doing all the graphics and sound. And it's kind of broken and kind of empty, but it's humongous and weird and interesting. And yeah, looking, I just really have been enjoying going back to all these games because um, there is this combination of, of complexity and of a single or a small team auteur sensibility that hits kind of the, I mean, and I think that is part of the 16-bit era in a lot of ways. Um, but the Amiga games are best when they're eccentric, as you were pointing out. They, in terms of just like straightforward level design and sort of doing platformers and that kind of stuff, generally they didn't hold a candle to the console stuff. Um, but yeah, there's just so many interesting ideas there. And to go back to that, yeah, that that joystick or mouse or you know, keyboard or some weird combination of the three restriction made for some really, really interesting solutions. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would not uh, necessarily recommend someone get one, but I certainly recommend downloading an emulator. Um, you can, uh, Hall of Light is incredibly good for finding manuals. Um, that yep. has been immensely helpful. And um, 
my one you know further research shout out would be that website uh digital antiquarian uh that guy has done a lot of blog posts on it but also wrote the book the future was here which was the amiga book in the um platform study series um it's and that book's very technical but his uh blog series is is pretty accessible and uh yeah it's i mean especially to people of a you know younger generation i think it is a machine you'll you'll find fascinating and mysterious Thanks, Jesse. Lovely. Yeah, I coveted the Amiga for several years before I got one, and then I got one, and I worshipped at its altar for a number of years, and now I'm left with an enormous amount of residual nostalgia and affection for it. But I can't honestly think of a compelling reason to set one up, hook one up, or actually play a game on one now. There's some really interesting software to look up and enjoy. Some of it is probably worth dabbling with on emulation, but actually it's not a machine that really has a library of exclusives that can't be enjoyed in some other way. Uh, Most of the, the real classics actually appeared at the time on other formats and are available and playable now in, you know, in easier and better ways. So, uh, yeah, for me, it's very much this has been a, a wonderful blast of nostalgia. Um, I've still got my complete set of Amiga Power magazines over there, and I've been loving diving back into all the soundtracks and thinking about some of the games that I haven't thought about for a long time. Um, but no, I don't recommend that you start collecting the Amiga. The, the The best case scenario is you end up with a crap PC like Chris has got, and there's you know there's no point. So just play just play Amiga games on your decent PC that you've already got. Um, and if you weren't there at the time, I hope this. Uh, if you were, I hope this has been a fun nostalgia trip. And if you weren't, I hope it's been of some interest. Chris, well, I don't have to take this crap PC remark, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, it's kind of true. I mean, it's got a better operating system. Anyway, <laughs> um, for me, it's been really lovely chatting and talking about this very important computer that changed a lot of things and made things better for other platforms because it just ended up borrowing a lot of the technology that uh, we now take for granted. We can be traced back to the Amiga, definitely. And I hope you've got that, got some of that out of it. And uh, looking back at the games, though, uh, as great as they were, um, it was a very interesting time when there were sort of, it was like a, you had basically Europeans making these games. Like I said, it kept on coming back. And it's, it's this theme of they had the bits, they had the ingredients, but they kept on putting them in the wrong order or overdosing on one bit and not focusing on the other, just the lack of design which I think ultimately let the platform down uh, and which is why the consoles of the day actually had the better um, games ultimately, in my opinion granted there were ports but they had to, in many cases reduce them or scale them down or alter them in some way because the power of the Amiga wasn't up there with these 16-bit platforms. I'm talking about Mega Drive and the SNES. So that that was quite revealing for me. And going back to these games uh, is is jarring. Unlike uh, the 16-bit games and 32-bit games of like PlayStation era, they're not nearly as jarring as when you're playing these because, like I said, there's 
there's, there's, there's deficiencies. Um, there are some golden nuggets, of course, amongst that. But that's what bothers me. Out of the four and a half thousand games we're, <laughs> we've, we've, you've, you've mentioned, you're right. In most cases, we, we kept on. It kept. It was a, it was a repeating theme of uh, this. Yeah, it's good on the Amiga. That happened a lot. We said it. It wasn't bad, but and then we'd say some other platform that yeah. was on, and it would be better on it. Uh, and there's nothing I could do about that. I was a huge uh, champion of the Amiga back in the day because I, I, I lacked um, the understanding of what the consoles were doing because I, I wasn't a big fan of them at the time. Uh, and I liked playing PC games and complex PC games. and, and that it, it, it was just a thing. And um, for, for me, that's, that's my takeaway is that the technology and, and computing... Uh, video game development owe a lot to the Amiga, uh, but uh, the, the the games for it, although great, um, were not um, um, mind blowing. In for the most part, they were generally done better elsewhere, and I definitely found that uh, certainly towards the later part of its life. When I did try to cling on to it, uh, but eventually I had to give in when I when I finally played Doom on a PC and realised that uh, there was. It was doomed as a platform. But there we are. Mm. But no, thank you for this opportunity to, for me to share my experience with the, with the platform. So thank oh, you. Oh, well, your lengthy Amiga history could not be ignored. Yeah. Uh, ben, let's conclude with our guest. One Credit Classics, Ben. Yeah, for me, I don't know, there's kind of, I suppose there's certain times in your life really that things change and it kind of shapes the person that you are kind of forever without you realising it. And for me and for a lot of people, I think your high school years, 11 to 16, are absolutely massive because formatively you develop kind of social skills and you become a, uh, you become aware of kind of how the world works in a, in a kind of a, a naive little way. And that time for me was perfectly illustrated and accompanied by the Super Nintendo. But the fuse for, for kind of me and, and gaming and being interested and stuff like that was kind of lit by the Amiga because it did everything I could have ever imagined. And more importantly, it opened my eyes up to like, hundreds of different gaming types and a load of fantastic titles and it, it sums up kind of for me when i look back at it it sums up kind of i don't know like gladiators on tv on a saturday and football in the park and buying music and talking to girls but more importantly like great times playing like either games alone or multiplayer like real multiplayer kind of with friends and and that we have joked loads about piracy but ironically that scene brought us all so close together uh, I think I bought like what you're talking about games oh, I've spent this much money I think I bought one game in the entire time I owned an Amiga I think I bought Sensible World of Soccer um, <laughs> but what I'd say is uh, I wouldn't make the mistake of, of going back to it because I promise you it really won't work in the same way I, I don't know in the same way that your first girlfriend really isn't that attractive anymore uh, but what you've got to do is simply remember what a great machine it was for the time and for our second at least it kind of I don't know, it was the key to creating uh, some really good memories of a, a truly simple time, maybe when the world seemed to spin a bit slower. Nicely put. Thanks, everybody, so much. It remains for me, Leon, to thank Chris, Jesse, Ben, and Editor Jay for this epic endurance. <laughs> as well as our correspondents, plus, of course, all of you for listening. Uh, you can find Ben at... Number one at Credit Classics on Twitter, One Credit Classics on Facebook, and on youtube and patreon at one credit classics there's a new season starting at the middle of july i've got a competition up at the moment and i am dangerously dangerously close to beating the <laughs> japanese rom of ghouls and ghosts on the arcade hardest difficulty setting without dying so keep um 
yeah keep tuning in for that one i died twice mm. on my run the other day i can do it 100 percent, i can do it. it just takes execution he will do it he absolutely will do it because the man is broken in the head i'm built for this if you've enjoyed this podcast please subscribe of course rate review best of all patreon.com slash cana rinse if you're hearing this at the right time you already are a patron thank you next time though in three months we're going to talk about sega's dreamcast it is the best machine that is around anywhere in the world the professional machine of the future How would I describe it? I think it's fantastic. Awesome. It's going to skyrocket. Only Amiga makes it possible. Only Amiga makes it possible. Only Amiga makes it happen. Only Amiga makes it possible. Only Amiga makes it happen. Amiga's got the guts to do things that you can't do on other hardware. And it does all the work for you. Wow. State-of-the-art technology at a price that everybody can afford. The Amiga is the best graphics machine available in the world today. Only Amiga. 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 It possible. Only Amiga. Only Amiga makes it possible. Only Amiga. <laughs> Outrageous. Makes it possible. Fabulous. Only Amiga. Makes it possible. Only Amiga. This is it. Makes it possible.